an Age of Sigmar story phase. Grab your hammer so we can clear a path through the chaos and forge our own narratives in the Age of Sigmar. Your allies through the Aether Winds this episode are... I'm Davey, and not a lot of people know this, but Warren Zevon actually sang about the character in Overlords a long time ago. Lawyers, guns, and money would get me out of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Paul, and uh, I don't know about you, but I think this battle film is shipshape. Uh, I'm Aaron, and uh, if I've learned anything about this book, it's that those who are can do, and those who are cannot work the docks. Nice. <laughs> this is Eric, and when it comes to frigates or ironclads, I'd take Aether Ore. In this episode, we cover the lore of the Caradron Overlord battle tome. Get ready to hear a whole lot of wheeling and dealing, keeling and cold stealing, and then if we have time after all that, we'll talk about those steampunk dwarden. How are you tonight, landlubbers? Yeah, that's us. Yeah, Keelan, because because on the ships, they've got the keel. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, guys yeah. get it, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's a funny joke. The underbelly of the ship. You know what? I was doing good. I'm doing much better now, actually. Nice. <laughs> nice. I'm, you know, I haven't been here for a couple of months, even though we were going to try and pretend like oh, I had We been. hadn't noticed. And that's how you're going to come back, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how I'm coming. That's how you know I'm here. Yeah. Coming uh, in hot. Uh, but yeah, so um, Aaron. Yeah. How you been? Hanging in there just fine. Um, I'd love to tell you interesting and compelling stories about things that I've been up to, but I am without. I am sans that. I'm still just working on terrain, which I feel like is all I've ever been talking about lately. Um, but beyond that, honestly, I'm sort of in a low key, low key position these days. Um, no deadlines. Not that I ever have deadlines, but uh, it's fun watching everybody else sort of scurry around and have to get stuff done. Nice, yeah. Davey. How's your scurrying? Uh, it's going pretty well. Getting ready for a, a annual game cabin getaway that's nice. happening next weekend. Looking forward to that. Sure, so. and you never sent me the address for nope, that. Actually, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's the first game. <laughs> well, if you can if you can find it. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of betrayal games on tap. So, like, uh, uh, it's already Battle started. <laughs> Is he going to turn into one of those comedy horror movies where everybody starts actually stabbing each other in the back? Uh, it remains to be seen. Okay. But. Um, other than that, uh, been doing a lot of underworld stuff. There's a lot of exciting things happening there. And, uh, I've been engineering a deck with friend of the show, Jeff Osborne, that, uh, I think is a legit contender. So Ooh. pretty excited about that. Um, could have been somebody. Yeah, I'm hearing the Rocky theme in my head right now. Yeah. Well, there's going to be a training montage. We'll see. Cause, uh, Adepticon <laughs> is coming up. So excited. About I hope that. the whole training montage is just you doing card tricks, like the different, like dealer, like, Oh, yeah, so I make sure you get the perfect hand. Yeah, yeah. I just want five minutes of you running upstairs. Actually, no, I don't want <laughs> just you cheating. Going. I just want you looking cool while you oh, do oh, it. Oh, okay, yeah. all right. And then that's your secret. You always look cool when you're playing card games. <laughs> Paul, speaking of Adepticon. Uh, and I, looking cool. And yeah. cool. gearing up to start working on the terrain for that. I've Because uh, the seven boxes of terrain is not enough. Oh, so no, back me up. Close to gearing up to start working. Mm-hmm. I'd really like to want to think about starting to work. Is it that sort of thing, or no? I several uh, stages past that. I realized that the skill set that I possess was not the skill set that I want in order to make the terrain the way that I want it to. So I've spent the last two weeks figuring out how to make that happen. So I'm pretty satisfied that I have hit the point where I'm able to do it now. So nice. I uh, wanted to make sure that I can execute the idea before starting working on it, which is a new thing for me. <laughs> well, I know that when you built the terrain originally, you used some of, uh, you know, I believe your dad's work, woodworking, or your, mm-hmm. uh, and so using those tools to kind of work with the material and learn how to use that. Yep. Can you give us a sneak peek or ta- uh, what, what kind of skill did you need to adapt? So there's a term called mitering, 
Okay. We're able, instead of a 90-degree cut on a material, it's to make a 45-degree cut. And that was something that I had to be able to figure out how to do on three-by-one-inch pieces okay. of, uh, of PVC foam. And turned out it was a lot more complicated than I thought. And I probably made a lot of more mistakes than most people do just because I don't know the history of being able to work with that material. So yeah. I had to learn how to do that. Very cool. Hey, Eric, what you been up to? Uh, well, um, season two of Dogs of War Cry launched uh, just last week. What's week that? Before. Podcasts around the game War Cry. Mm, I don't like any of those. Um, so Josh and Paven <laughs> have have uh, stuck with it and got some new stuff for this this year so that's taking some time and then uh warcry league um man having uh the warcry league and the underworlds league on thursday nights at our local store it just makes for a really fun atmosphere and a lot of a lot of people hanging out and playing games so yeah it was cool just with the um with uh both games we were a little worried would we would we kind of run out of room for one or the other, but it hasn't, hasn't been a problem yet. Um, and they've been pretty adaptable as far as making that happen. And there's just an extra energy having, having like a, a full, yeah full house. I think it'd be fun some night to do a, a two game night where, um, you just pair people up. You teach war cry players underworld, you teach war, underworld players war cry. Um, just to kind of mix people, get to know names and that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, I think that's I'm, a good idea. Just put it out on the spot here. It may be a terrible idea. It may not work at all. But Aaron, what do you I, think about that? I've got a much better idea. Here's the deal. One player plays Warcry versus the other player playing Underworlds on like an Underworlds board. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, let's just let's just get crazy. Here's with the thing, it. Warcry has way more activations. So it just feels... Well, you just have to take that into account. A good I bet Davy would do just fine, all right? <laughs> uh, a- ATC team winning Davy would something, something. would need yeah. <laughs> we 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 need a we need a Bobby Fisher situation. We'll get somebody like Cam, Cam, like real talented, have him stand in the middle and he'll play a Warcry game here while playing an Underworlds game on <laughs> the other table versus AI. Yeah. We should call up Deep Blue. Yeah, I think that'd be a good solution for this problem. And then when one guy dies on one game, you actually get to bring him over into the other game. No, he dies in real life. <laughs> <laughs> Murder game ball. And, okay. And Vince just standing around with like a bloody knife. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I've been uh I've been building an, a new ironclad idea for the Cradron Overlords. Uh, only this one has dwar- has ogres on it. It's pretty intense. It is. Ooh, I need tents. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's been fun. Having a, it's been a while since I had a big meaty project to to convert, sink my teeth in. It's just been doing a lot of content over the last Me- year. Meaty, sinking your teeth yeah. in, ogres. Yeah, I let's go it. have buffalo wings. Sure. Yeah. Uh, let's <laughs> let's take this take the show on the road. But that's been what's up for me cool you guys want to do a little little story phase name of the game here let's do a big one yeah Ooh, a big oh. one well we're all here we might as well yeah. we can share that load um all right so we're here to, here, here to talk about the crowd and overlords uh paul read me that sweet story lord story phase intro thing the story phase in the story phase we delve into the stories characters creatures and environments of the nine realms i think i just said we're gonna read we're talking about the Karajan Overlords battle tone, but I'm gonna say it again because that's how important it is, uh, so y'all don't forget. So uh, this is this is Ko have been around for a while now. I think 2017 is probably when they when they released, but we figured it, we didn't really cover them per se last time uh, this uh, their first battle tome came out, so it it was high time that we uh, gave them their due diligence. Now. High time, high time um, with this recently released battle tome, uh, however long ago it was. 
2017 is correct. Yeah, I'm a genius. I can do this all day. Give me another one. Uh, oh, Aaron, you rigged the balloons to drop. I feel like you rigged that up. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, but they're like, look at, look at their uh, engine rigger. Uh, <laughs> Ow! Oh, oh, God. It hurts. Because Aether Gold isn't real, nerds. All right, so um, for anybody who doesn't know, who's who's been asleep, I guess, I don't know, uh, this whole time, could we try and catch them up let's let's reacquaint maybe, the world maybe with they've the just been below the clouds this whole time quite possibly they've been landlocked and we're, we've been uh, up we've had our heads in the clouds yeah uh would Ascended. you guys yeah would you guys be willing to tr- make an attempt give a try at summing up the Karajan overlords in one sentence in one sentence only uh eric's raising his hand he wants to do it all right a group of dwarden left the past behind to rise above it all find their fortune sell it to everyone else in the realms while looking down on them was that a haiku? Huh? That's Kinda pretty good. Like a haiku. That's pretty Could've good. Been. Hey, it was off the top of my dome, written down briefly before we started. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the same thing. It's not off the top of your No. Uh, I didn't edit it three times. Who wants to go next? All right. I'm going to go. Uh, so they are godless Dwarden sky sailors with a steampunk and industrial flavor that fly skyships and hunt for ether gold. Mm. All right, David, give, give me your best shot. Mendacious mercantile mercenaries mining monetary minerals. Min- minerals uh, for Mornar, motivated by. We're <laughs> <laughs> they, making money. Yeah, I, motivated I, by money. I appreciate mendacious. <laughs> that was easily the biggest you word know, that we had. You know, I'm mendacious. I don't. Know I've been pushing <laughs> puns all this time, but I didn't know alliteration was your gift. So I feel like. I feel like we deserve more of that in the future. Yeah. Just putting it out there. Keep that in mind. Uh, so, Aaron, what's your one sentence? Well, no, I don't have to answer the question. I asked. I asked. I'm the putting question. you on the spot. The judges right say now. I'm the one who knocks. <laughs> don't wait. You think that of me? Uh, I didn't write it down. I'm like you. You want my word puzzle? No, I'm okay. I obviously didn't write it down because I got halfway around. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know going into it that you're going to do that though? Uh, I thought of it while I was locking eyes with Paul. So <laughs> mm, uh, intense. Those eyeballs, inspirational. Yeah. Uh, I was I was two words in when when uh, Paul was about to start. So. <laughs> nice. Um, I don't, I, let's say like mercantile Dwarden. Uh, mercantile, good choice. I, I like, like it. Yeah. Uh, man- Sometimes just merc. Manning. Um, no, uh, piloting skyships. I'm just going to repeat what you guys have already said. The fourth person doesn't really have a lot of creativity left. That's um, why I went first. Yeah. I have a lot of excuses though. That sure. <laughs> Are you an F1 driver? Is that what's going on here? Hey, they're uh, not excuses. They're loopholes in the code. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, uh, Mercantile Jordan, uh, manning uh, airships um, decked out with uh, extensive arcano technology uh, on the hunt for uh, mystical, magical Aether gold that powers the aforementioned uh, tools. Manning airships, your biases are showing. Yeah, by right. Eesh. Awkward. So, manning and womaning bi- airships. <laughs> Crewing. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> um, I knew what I was doing. Uh, no accidents. Guys, so I think we have painted an entire picture of this race. Uh, episode done. done. We, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, missing one word from my little word thing here. Please lay it on us. Meritocracy. Meritocracy. Oh man, yeah. that's that should have that been, was yeah, yeah that was oh, blonde man. there. And did anyone include the code in their description? No, nobody included the code either. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I literally spent like 30 minutes trying to come up with every word I could think of to describe it, and I failed miserably to fit them in one sentence. Sure. Well, What's that's the blurb. Where are we at now? What's next? Oh, you. So that, I, that, <laughs> I thought that was it. I'm that glad you asked. Um, this is all after the credit stuff, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am glad you asked because now we can maybe we can break into some of these interesting things that make the KO 
what they are. So let's start with the, the mercantile aspect of it. The uh, the the buying and selling. They're 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 traders. Um, I was gonna say by trade, which seems redundant. Um, what what about that uh, sticks out for our for our KO? I think where they've kind of taken everything and boiled it down to a price or a cost. Um, no longer do they have the same kind of reverence for things uh, like their ancestors had, where they may have revered a place. Well, on the surface, it seems this way, right? Uh, you know, the mountains that they their their ancestors grew up in and held so dear, they were able to leave that behind, and then from there, kind of just feel like a more pragmatic. Everything's yeah. for sale. Ruthlessly pragmatic, yep. you might say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that's one aspect of that the the meritocracy and mercantile life. Mm-hmm. Everything's for everything's for sale. Everything's True. got a price. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I would also just amend that everything is for profit, right? They don't really worship a god. They don't really have a religious system. But the thing, the one thing that is overarching throughout the whole race is they seek and try and increase their profit at every turn. And uh, what what is important about this, other than just some background, it defines how they interact with the greater Age of Sigmar world, right? Mm-hmm. Like any army, you want to know why they're fighting or why they why would they interact with this army or why would they fight this army or in what way would this battle come to pass? And their their mercantile nature is defining that for them. So, mm-hmm. um, and it's fun because it lets you make some connections that you would have been hard hard-pressed to make with more traditional Dwarden uh, mm-hmm. from the old world. So, I mean, I think even in our uh, our Trail of Fears, the skirmish campaign that Eric ran um, for us, like we set up that uh, my overlords had had some interactions with um, Aaron's uh, Iron Jaws tribe. Um, and you were able to do that. I had, you know, was able to do a fair piece of background on that. And it didn't feel forced or out of place. I mean, even this book mentions that uh, it is kind of rare, but not unheard of for them to trade with, with the, uh, orc, the greenskin uh, tribes. And I was like, right on. Yeah. Cool. Um, and I hope I'm not wandering too far afield by bringing this up, but it, it's interesting that it kind of relates a little bit to the other Duard, main Duarden faction of the Moral Rums, which is the Fire Slayers, which is they're also willing to de-wheel and sort of That's negotiate true. with folks. For a similar, but not exactly the same reason. They're not necessarily motivated by money per se, but rather this particular brand of money, which this isn't a Fire Slayer episode we don't need to get into. But like that ends up being sort of a hallmark of most of the Dwarden races that we see in the, in the mortal realms. And that's, that's what they've done well with Age of Sigmar in general, is take some of these tropes, traditional fantasy ideas that we're all well familiar with and take a twist. So both these Dwarden factions we've seen are pursuing money, but they're doing it for reasons that are not you know the traditional that we're used to seeing you know in tolkien-esque sort of uh fantasy mm-hmm. um and i i like i like seeing that familiar it's it's cool to have that familiar piece that's got the twist on it rather than just being like here's something like you know 180 degrees away from that like mm-hmm. that's that's a that's a cool way to approach it yeah yeah it reserved the greed which kind of is a hallmark of all the dwarden or dwarf and even other fantasy systems but it really scaled it down to allow you to understand how this grade is different from that grade, right? Um, and that's a really successful thing to do, um, especially with the KO versus the Fire Slayer versus the normal Dwarden that live in the, the, the Eight Realms. So, sure. I think that because they're quite a bit different than 
what were your traditional Dwarden. I feel like the Fire Slayers made one step on, you know, one step for, step for Dwarden kind kind of thing, where having that little twist where that, that Urgold was so important that they would work for Chaos or they would work uh, for destruction in return made it easier for us to maybe make that jump for Kale where they're like, yeah, we, we would do the same for anybody. So it's kind of, yeah, it didn't feel out of place once we had those rules in place. Sure. Uh, speaking of out of place, let me ask you about the next maybe hallmark of this this faction. Uh, no longer groundbound, these these uh, sailors of the sky, but rather now they are they are bedecked on their airships, flying all about uh, the the mortal realms. Um, what about that uh, grabs your guys' interest? I mean, again, it's it's a cool uh, twist, and I I just talked about how like it was cool to see something that was a hundred and eighty degree switch. This is yeah. right, like. Uh, and this, this sort of came to pass, uh, and I don't know if I'm jumping too far ahead here, but you know, during the age of chaos, uh, as the, as the Dwarden are retreating, some retreat downwards and are presumably overcome or may, you know, however, however they get, or maybe fire maybe slayers. Still there. Yeah. Maybe they're still there. Uh, root wardens, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. went deep. Yeah. I remember those guys. I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Think about they're them every day. Super cool. Uh, but some of them retreated upwards. And then when you run out of places to go up. On the mountain, sky's the limit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it was kind of a cool idea uh, of of how it came to pass, and uh, so it started out as like a desperate escape, and then uh, cobbled together. I mean, it really feels like post apocalyptic for them mm-hmm. in a different way. Like, like we had to leave behind, and it, it's that uh, that whole incident. We'll talk about that more. Some of the other aspects of them, but it's it's very defining to how their culture came to exist. Was this was this escape, and how they got in the position where they had to escape, and um, you know, the, the challenges it put on them, it was, it was a real crucible of their formation as a, as a culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Crucible. Nice. I like it. Solid. I think too, I, yeah, I, I love that they took dwar- dwarves that are typically underground, earthbound, almost like that, the making the joke of them being short because they're just so close to the earth and would be unwilling to change that. And they just went to the extreme on the other side and put them up in the air uh, first, like they're the first ones up in the air, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and the airships, like in order to do that, you believe that because of the the trope of their um, craftsmanship, like that they could build something that's worthy of that, that could get them there. Like they're ingenuitive enough that that would work. It makes sense. Yeah, I think the character of the aeronauts is really just such a compelling image. And I think they successfully have managed to combine the Dwarden with the Aeronaut. But again, keeping with the Dwarden trope, they're dependent upon mining. But instead of being mined from the ground, it's mined from the air with this ether gold. Um, it, it's a lot of combinations of keeping the tropes and twisting them together. And, and I mean, the miniatures really tell the story really well. Um, but the Battle Tome just gives you the background that helps you to understand where that story came from. And I think they did a really good job with that. Um, we can jump into Ether Gold in a second. I just don't want to miss the opportunity to make this goof. But I can only imagine the scenario where GW is like, all right, when you have to come up with these new races, what do we got to do? Well, we've got to Warden. Um, they'd like to live in the ground. Wait, what if they lived in the sky? We've got these elves. Normally, they like to live in forests. Wait, what if they lived in the ocean, though? 
Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. If, if all you had to do was take an army and be like, no, but what if they live somewhere else? And then boom, brand new Age of Sigmar army. Well, no, uh, you can hire me. You not a bad spitball session. Yeah. yeah. But I think that the success to me is that it's not like, oh, we just put them underwater. No, we created this whole culture, right? I just read um, that Black Library book that just came out. And the way that they've encompassed it and then put that thought into the design is really what sells it. I mean, which was basically, what if we put them in the ocean and then like, oh man, that doesn't make any sense. Wait, 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 I'll make it make sense. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, flying does, sharks are what sell it. <laughs> oh, it does feel like that's the seed though. It's like, what if this, and then mm-hmm. let's do the thought experiment of where that, uh, where that leads us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Let's go crazy and cool then places. make it sane. And that's, that's yeah. It's you know, awesome that means that thought. there are things that they've paired and they have not been able to <laughs> carry that thread all the way. And we're like, no, nope, burn that to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're missing those umbrella Dwarden, you know, yeah. the Mary Poppins race. It's it's completely gone. Sorry, mm-hmm. obliterated <laughs> from history. Um, all right, Paul, you brought up the Aether Gold. Let's let's talk about that because that's another hallmark of of this race. So, mm-hmm. uh, tell me more. Um, again, twisting the trope on its head. As opposed to mining something solid, they're mining something that's gaseous, and not only gaseous, but it's lighter than air, and it is super easy to be transferred around on the winds which actually is causing an issue um, in this book because we've had um, the Gash's spell go off, which right? Which we'll talk about, yeah. Which we'll talk about. Um, Specifically when you say transfer around winds, like magical currents affect yep. it. Um, Absolutely. And so they are dependent upon these streams for everything, from the food that they eat to the cities that they live in to their warfare. Everything is dependent upon it, which is a really interesting crux for the civilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it brings some things because this is it's not maybe fully understood. You know, they're doing a lot of experimentation on it. Um, there's this uh, big push science over over uh, magic and science over gods and and that mm-hmm. sort of thing in this. Um, and so they're they're experimenting, trying to think. And it's weird where it exists. Like they know that it's being affected by these magical winds, but mm-hmm. I think they're they're viewing these viewing magic as well, if I just figure out the rules of it, then mm-hmm. it's essentially just like, another law of nature yep. and I can yep. treat it with scientific character. And I think that's how they get those to exist. But back to the Aether Gold, they're not sure if it's a, a, if it's a renewable resource. They don't know if it's exhaustible or not. And so there's some that are worried that, hey, we're consuming this faster and faster and faster and growing more and more hungry for it. What happens if we use it all up? Like, mm-hmm. have we hit peak Aether Gold? Like, that's the... That's the uh, concern um, here, and so that that creates sort of an ominous undertone for for some of this, and also a real life parallel a little bit. Ouch! Eesh. Too con- real. That connects into one of my favorite themes that's really brought to the fore in this book. Is it environmentalism? Is it an unreliable narrator? <laughs> no, actually, yours is better. Is I'm going to cut mine out. Is it interesting? <laughs> I believe so. We'll but be you be the judge. <laughs> Uh, is the industrial theme. Not only just industrial, but heavy, polluting, soul-crushing, like Victorian industrial revolution mm-hmm. theme to this race. Um, I don't recall that from the last Battle Tome, and it really is illustrated very well in this one. It, uh, you know, Before we get too far away from Aether Gold, it comes up specifically that Aether Gold is super caustic, uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of its byproducts are. Uh, so very... Uh, very dangerous in and of itself, like it's a hazardous material. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, and they talk about the difference between some of the skyports. Yeah, uh, some of the more the, the more traditional Barrack Thring mm-hmm. uses uses these uh, 
old, uh, you know, some would say an- antiquated versions of powering things, but their air is way cleaner because mm-hmm. they're like, yeah, the old ways. The old ways are better. Are, yeah. yeah. And the, especially the way they're talking about the way that the Caradron society is ordered, we're seeing the Arcanauts, right? But the vast majority of the Duarden don't ever make it into the air. Mm-hmm. They are working the docks if they're good, right? If they are wealthy, they're living in these floating mansions. Mm-hmm. If they're not, they're working in the factories. Yeah. Right? They're living in these cramped conditions, just full of pollution and toiling and toiling. And they even talk about the water being polluted and just dropping onto the land below. And that's a really cool just image. Um, And for the people below. True. (laughs) But it's a great hallmark of how this race functions. And it's a great illustration of profit at the cost of everything. I was really liking them for a little bit. Thanks for that, Paul. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, then I'm going to bring up the last, uh, at least in my, to my mind, hallmark of this race, and that is um, the the ethos that they abide by when doing all of the stuff that we just sort of described. As they they call it, do they call it themselves the the Caradron Code? Caradron yeah. Code. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a little. I mean, couldn't think of a better name. That's a little on the nose, don't you think? Uh, but this is a code that. Um, Basically, all, all of these, these Duarden live by. Um, it's an exhaustive, um, thorough, and a third word that means those two things, uh, code that basically <laughs> rules any number of uh, interactions between uh, the, the Karajan, between themselves, how they interact with the world at large, mm-hmm. how they go about their mining of this ether gold, how they're supposed to man their ships, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, I think, a fun little... Uh, inclusion that anything they do can always be referenced back to this nebulous, um, not necessarily easily defined code that can be sort of interpreted in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, it, it, they can always, any of their maybe unscrupulous actions oftentimes are, are supported and pushed by the code that they're they're following. Yeah. Um, tell me more about the, the code, fellas. What do you guys think about it? Well, it was created in a council on this floating island called the Island of Madralta which is a really f- fun pun for me. Uh, is it Madrid and Malta? Malta is an island. Yeah. And I believe there were councils that were held on Malta. So I what think was this a is a famous point. conference of Malta during World War II. Get the, um, the, the allies kind of oh, figure yeah, out what yeah, they're, yeah. what they're going to do. So. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I've heard talk about crossing the Rubicon and I'm, I'm crossing into 40 K here. So I apologize, but crossing the Rubicon is actually a term that was used in war. And now when they talk about Primaris, they talk about crossing the Rubicon. So they're starting to get more actual war lexicon into Warhammer and Warhammer 40k. And it's a fun way of making everything seem more realistic. And like, more I want fantasy. stuff to feel less realistic. <laughs> Get your facts out of my yeah, fantasy. Nonsense. Yeah. Uh, but basically the idea is that once they manage to rise up into the air everything got better because they were able to defend themselves and they were able to subsist on their own without being constantly fought. And when there is peace above, of course, strife follows as everybody's saying, well, that's mine. That's mine. That's mine. And they were fighting constant civil wars back and forth. Yeah, those were mines. Those were mines. Those were mines. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Well, in the early days, resources are very scant. You know, they Mm -hmm. don't have all their technologies and uh, it's all desperation to survive. And we talk about that uh, post-apocalyptic environment. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's a that's a theme that comes with a lot of post-apocalyptic media. You know, uh, what do you do with other survivors? Are they friends or foes? And here they started leaning towards foes. Like they were on the verge of 
after escaping chaos, maybe wiping themselves out. Uh, and so then they sat down and had a big, big ham session to figure it out and mm. uh, set up the basically the code of conduct rules that would govern their society. And they're exhaustive. Uh, mm. But like all rules, there's loopholes. Yeah. And that's some of the funnest yeah. parts. Well, and yeah. I think, I mean, this why is are you a- smiling so big? <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those things that makes them Dwarden uh, that we know, right? Because, um, you know, the Dwarden that we know or that we're familiar with in the past have a very structured way of doing things. Uh, it's often dictated by ancestry, by blood, and this is the antithesis at the same time. It's just another version of creating that order out of chaos and, and kind of you're almost judged by how well you adhere to that order, right? In the same kind of way. The other side of it, though, is it does feel like instead of that structure making room for grudges as a basis of, you know, keeping track of how you've been wronged, uh, this came out of trying to create more peace. So there's a, you know, while there's loopholes, it's, it almost feels like it's gives room to let go of grudges, right? Mm-hmm. It gives you room to not have to keep track of that. I'm sure there's still grudges and yeah. all that kind of stuff, but mm-hmm. it just, it, it just feels like a more permissive. It, it feels like a more um, peaceful version of creating order in it. And it puts the, I mean, it kind of gives that, you know, pick you up by yourself by the bootstraps and make something of yourself a little more, you know, go West young man kind of mentality, which has its own perils in, mm. in, in the system. But yeah, you know, it, kind of tries to do away with grudges. It kind of seems like there's less opportunity for a grudge where if, if you were quote unquote wronged, but someone was able to point to the code and be like, no, but I got away with it because of this. You'd be like, ah, it's not your fault. It's the code's fault. I mean, mm. not, not not the code's fault. Like, ah, well, okay. I should have known. I should have known better. Yeah. It's written right there. You know what they call that when you can skate through those? I can't wait. Gleaming the code. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> that is a... I don't quite get the reference, oh, but it's still oh, fun. Oh, you don't. Admiral Christian Slater. <laughs> It's Sorry, an 80s, 80s movie called Gleaming the Cube about skateboarding. Um, I was more of a Brink guy myself. That's right. That was in line skate. I mean, it was it was good. It was yeah. it was a super deep cut. Real, Thanks. real solid. It's um, not important um, unless everyone's laughing. I mean, so. <laughs> yeah. As far as trying to make a real or parallel, it's basically a constitution, right? For Americans, as we are, um, it's a constitution that is constantly getting amended, constantly getting changed, and constantly it, under attack. Exactly, constantly <laughs> under attack by uh, Mornar. But there we go. Yeah. So it, it's a really interesting, like Eric was saying, interesting detail of this culture and civilization. And it defines everything that they do. But at the same time, it defines the limitations of how far they can go. And this calls to mind, I guess, in that as far as order armies go, like there are fewer order armies that are more order than KOR, right? Because, I mean, they literally have a document to d- define how they go about, like, how society even runs. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that's quintessentially in, in order. Man, order and Gash is a bit more ordered. Well, he wants to is be. this the conversation? Is <laughs> no. this what the direction you want? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, He's got to be brought up once in a while, like every show. Sure. Uh, friend of the show, Nagash. Um, so, I feel like we've uh, tiptoed around it a little bit. Maybe, maybe we dive into some of the um, the origins uh, of this race from once, once they came. I think Davey sort of uh, brought up generally where they're coming from. Do you want to tell, tell the tale uh, real quick? Well, there's, there's, there's some interesting things. So, that the Duarden end up in, uh, primarily in, but not exclusively in, Shaman. Mm-hmm. And uh, Grungni does not, Grungni the, uh, the smith god, he's one of the, one of the uh, original pantheon uh, as far as 
Age of Sigmar goes. Uh, he's not one to coddle his followers, and they're not one to accept that. And so once he's got them set up, like, I'm out. Peace. I got things to do. Yeah. Uh, but it does say he left humans, Dwarden, and Golem kind. Mm. Yep. Shaman. Yes, we do have Spelled a new race, race for yeah. sure. Yeah. Was this location called out in the first book? I don't remember it specifically saying that he set them down in Shaman. Yeah, uh, basically, this, this was this felt yeah. new to me. That that because I remember in early days, you know, we were in Shaman for the Realmgate Wars, and we saw mm-hmm. stuff going on in the distance that we thought maybe was hearkening to these guys. Um, but yeah, um, Grugni set up a space for like a paradise in the middle of mm-hmm. Shaman with with resources and jewels and gems and um, uh, just the riches of the realm mm-hmm. for them to create their civilization in. Uh, and, uh, and that was interesting to me that there was this Eden that he created. So that we, we, we know that the, the pantheons like set up the realms for mortals mm-hmm. of different kinds, but this was the, felt like the first time we got like a real picture of like, what was Grungney's idea of that for, sure. for people. And yeah. I, 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 that was really awesome. Yeah. Um, so there is a realm stone for this realm as there are for all of them called Shamanite. Um, shame on you. And this has allowed them to make this wondrous technology that really isn't possible in the other realms. Um, that's one of the char- defining characteristic of this paradise that Grungji has set up for them. But the really interesting thing to me is that this doesn't really seem like a mortal world. This seems like a heaven. And so to me, that usually applies to the realm of death. But Grungji has basically built a heaven for these mortal Dwarden in Shemont. And they are allowed to live there unmolested for almost millennia, it seems like. They're able to just toil away, doing exactly what they love, and he has specifically put everything that they need and everything that they want to do in this paradise. And when Zinch gets a hold of this, because that's what, what's, what we're moving towards, it is literally paradise lost. Um, and it is because of this specific god beast called a load griffin. Uh, this Get a load of that griffin. Exactly. So this load griffin is drawn into this place um, that becomes known as the Spiral Crux by Zinch. And when the load griffin lands in this area, the magnetic force of his presence warps and turn- tears everything apart. Is this where they the Dwarden figure out some some way to turn it to gold? Like, hey, we, yep. yeah, this is this is how we're gonna take and it. And they're mages. and yeah. there's human mages as well. And they're and like they, they're already leveraging aether gold at this point. They've they've found it, so it exists okay. already. They call it the breath of Grungni, but yeah, um, but so they're but they're uh, harness that to turn this god beast into gold. Mm-hmm. But it's death scream tears open a rift. Yep, and then it's bad time. And yeah, so the rift uh, opens wide, and just demons start start pouring uh, pouring mm-hmm. out, which is where sort of what we were talking about before, where uh, a lot of races go to hide, they go to ground, or they go to the opposite of ground, which is sky, mm-hmm. um, as the as the dwarves sort of yeah climb their mountains higher and higher and higher, and mm-hmm. like we said, there's nowhere else to go but up, 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 and they they um, lean on their technology and this sort of recent, relatively recently found aether gold to raise their fortresses up into the sky. And mm-hmm. these are sort of the foundational um, sort of pioneers yeah, or they pilgrims 
uh, of the Karadran overlord race. They call them the Steamhead Pioneers, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, literally? I thought I came up with Pioneers. You did. No, you did. It's sorry, okay. It's fine. You did. You got that. Yeah, you did. But the Steamhead Pioneers see this this coming, and they build endrins underneath the holds, right? So we, we've heard of Black Arcs before, but these are Sky Arcs that the Dwarden are building to lift up their cities into the sky. Well done. Bravo. I wouldn't have thought to do that. Yeah, it's yeah. like peak performance there. Mm-hmm. Peak engineering. Because uh, they're mountains. Get it? Get it. Maybe no. no, come back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't walk upstairs. This is working fine with three. I'll be, I'll be upstairs. <laughs> Y'all don't need me. Um, all right. Uh, and I think it's from, at this point, we're sort of transitioning into the Age of Chaos. It's like this mm-hmm. attack was sort of the one of the, the crossing over points from the Age of Myth to yeah. the Age of Chaos. And we've, uh, we've found a number of, of uh, ways that factions are defined is by how they responded to the age of chaos you know what was their what was their reaction and here the fact that grungni was gone didn't come back sigmar took off you know part of the way through the age of chaos closed the doors uh they had to get by on their own and so that was sort of deep in their psyche is like we did this we did this without the help of gods we survived the age of chaos we did it on our own ingenuity Mm -hmm. with the help of the code so they're fiercely independent in, in that nature, and it, uh, that's that's kind of there, there's a lot of the the age of chaos, you know, waves of demons and and so on and so forth, and mm-hmm. um, we've talked some about uh, the the code and all that. But yeah, um, it's not to keep drawing parallels to fire slayers. Mm-hmm. I don't even particularly like fire slayers all that much, but the but fact that you like wow, well, you're just gonna offend Kenny. the whole no, race, I don't, I don't, Kenny. I'm I don't, sorry, I don't I'm sorry. dislike them. Oh. I just don't like them a lot the point being Save is that it. but they also you know <laughs> weren't a they also didn't survive the age of chaos necessarily with the help of their god percent you would argue that maybe our goal is the help of their god but like they I also mean, he did go and get himself killed by a salamander sure, and then they just spread the wealth but the point being is like they also didn't have a god yep. to go to uh, yep. in the, the age of chaos Ford uh, don't need nobody apparently not well and i think one of the interesting things about them is that <laughs> they, ab- they abandoned their realm stone shamanite and instead of dependent upon this non-realm sum called Ether Gold. Um, so not only have they abandoned their god, they have abandoned their realm, really. Yeah, okay, by then. I didn't really kind that. of, although they all, with one notable exception, are still operating in Shaman. Mm-hmm. Sure. The major ones. Yeah. yeah um, though, I mean, GW would say, oh, no, you're you're whatever Barrack can be from it forever. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, it, it specifically just does say the major, the major. Oh, sky the course. major ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the ones with a seat on the Gildrad. Six. Too yeah. true. Um, I'll ask, uh, is there any age of chaos then stories that folks were drawn to or wanted to talk about? Um, I, I really like the great sky war. Tell me about it. Uh, this is literally where they rise up out of the mountains, taking with them the holds. And they talk about how in this one, they're defected. They're defended by, gyrocopters and gyro bombers right they haven't even developed their ships yet and it is this constant warring battle against zinch and this is where their time of peace their time of great acceleration comes from i mean it feels very battle of britain like the, the yes. valiant solo pilots like it's pretty it's pretty cool like i, I had those vibes in there it's like yeah, yeah. i like that yeah there's yeah. no destroyers it's literally just yeah. one man ships going out and taking out everything and uh, this is also the time during the Age of Chaos is, is when the, that uh, Conference of Madralta happens. And so I think we talked about it before, but it's it, it worth bringing up that it's while they're up in the skies is when they realize that they needed to get together and, you know, sort of work as one. Otherwise, they would have tore themselves apart. Yeah. Um, but uh, Age of Chaos basically just rolls on underneath them. 
while they're floating around trading with each other, mining that ether gold. Uh, and it's not until the Age of Sigmar hits when uh, the Stormcast Eternals come rocketing in into the mortal realms where they start to really interact again with the, the realms. So they've sort of been, not on a hiatus, but like, but they've been put on pause a little bit, doing their own thing, mm-hmm. uh, and now they've they've uh, seen that it's maybe worthwhile to revisit those mortal realms and, um, and maybe Tremont specifically and, and reintegrate into society. And I remember they, there were obtuse references to this during the Realm Gate Wars, like the clouds high above the mountains, you know, strange gold clouds and flashes in the clouds above. Oh, and, were there? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And you, we were like, oh, is that Zinch? Is that something else? What is that? And it was so they... Right, right from the start, there were, there were. I think they had the idea that they were going to do something like this. Smart, yeah. Uh, and smart. this ties right back into talking about profit, right? When the cha- stormcast chambers open, that's when the free cities start coming out, and the stability is there to allow the Caradron to determine that there is profit to be made. Sure, because they don't jump in right away. As yep. soon as the gates open, they're not like, "All right, this yep. cavalry charge time." Like, we're going to wait and see. We got by okay. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure that we're not going to tip our hand and get ourselves in a bad spot. Yeah. That leads into one of the stories that I really liked, and that was called The Grand Tour. Uh, and this was a case of uh, Brock Gundrenson deciding to go uh, and meet with some of the Stormcast, take a tour, and they go to Greywater Fastness, which is kind of that industrial Ironweld uh, city of Sigmar. Uh, to kind of see what their everything's about, they mention Valius Maliti uh, as the chief architect, um, and it says that uh, so he goes in to kind of tour the facilities, see where their technology is at, and there's an abrupt stop to the tour. He goes back to his uh, ironclad or to his ships. They take off without a word, and we don't have confirmation of what. Cause cut to off trade. Right? Cut off trade. So I want to pose to you guys, what did Brock see that caused him to flee? Not flee, just leave. I don't know what he saw specifically, but I think he tapped into... Wait, I don't know if it was said in this book or is this something I know from somewhere else? You know it from somewhere else. Okay, gotcha. But I don't know what he saw, but <coughs> he, he, I think he's been tipped off that uh, the folks he met with, the, the leadership of that city, not what they appear to be. And I think we know from other sources that, that there is a there is a Zinch influence, maybe a Zinch infiltrator uh, in that town. Gotcha. One of their age-old enemies. And so he sniffed it out some way, somehow, or I don't know, maybe just has a bad vibe. The guy's, he's gotten by. He's got a bad uh, feeling about yeah, this. Yeah, yep. So it, that's that's <laughs> enough for him to, to cut well, stakes. I, I'm glad we have some story there. I wanted to speculate that maybe he saw some tech that maybe they had stolen from the KO or from some other engagement and were adapting. Or the opposite, that it was just so far below them, because it also talks about how they'd already gone through kind of the cog age themselves and had surpassed that some time ago. And so there was maybe not enough here to offer. Not, not much to do. Yep. But I don't think that I, precludes it. Um, well, it could be all the above. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. But uh, I like that there is a, I thought that was a, a mystery. But not a mystery. Like the, the, ma- the mayor or something is actually like a zinch. I, I think, and I, I've not read the new zinch book, but I think that is where people are drawing the connection. Like, oh, I think gotcha. there's a reference there to a cult okay. burgeoning in uh, Greywater Fastness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anybody might sniffing out. Them. I think the KO would be the ones to do it. Um, also, speaking of stories that this this time frame uh, reminds me of, it's, there's a, one of the first, I guess, interactions of the KO and this sort of new Stormcast forces is the um, the Battle of Vindicarum, which is a city, a free city in 
shaman, um, it was being attacked by Zinch. Surprise, surprise. And it was the Celestial Vindicators are sort of defending it, and it was a lot of airborne fights going on. It was the Prosecutors versus, you know, Screamers and other things that the Zinch can throw at it, folks on discs and things. The Prosecutors are doing what they can, but they're actually starting to get overrun uh, quite a bit. But who should come out of the clouds just barreling down, guns a-blazing, literally guns a-blazing, because they have guns and they're a-blazing, yeah. um, is the, the KO uh, <laughs> cannons firing. Um, and they are Probably able to tur- turn the tide of this battle. And it's one of the first introductions uh, between like the Stormcast and the, the, the Karajan Overlords. And so it must have been at this point where the Karajan, either either they have some sort of mercy uh, or, you know, sympathy. I don't think that's true. I think they realize, all right, well, you know what? I think these folks are probably worth training with. They've got something that we want. Let's swoop in because we can't trade with a bunch of dead people. Right. Um which is we can talk about later, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so they realized it was it was in their best interest to save the city rather than let it burn, and um, that is one of the introductions to the, the, these forces joining forces. And um, they, uh, the two surviving armies, the Stormcast and the Karajan Overlords, come to an agreement, and um, they introduce different like trading agreements and things. And then some sort of loophole in the code was that um, the Karajan Overlords are going to have sort of exclusive rights to the the area, et cetera, et cetera. So. By no means were they doing it completely gener- generously, but they had some uh, ulterior motives in, in saving the city, yeah. which I think is going to be the theme throughout. And it the, does feel the like it's, it was that kind of agreement where Stormcast probably don't even know what they're agreeing to, or care, like what, or care at that yeah. point. At which point, down the road, they were like, "Sorry, you know, hmm. we we already signed the deal." I particularly enjoyed the feeding frenzy story. Uh, it is about a Caradron army that is attacked by grot bag scuttlers. Of course, mm-hmm. of course, of course. You did. Uh, and they retreat through a megalofin herd, and I I just like the image of the the ko like nimbly steering in between and around and under, whereas the grop eggs are just like crashing into everything over and over. Uh, because at the end of the story is that the Caradon Overlord fleet does escape and the grop egg scuttlers do not. I mean that's a very Star Wars scene, right? Like yep. stuff flying around like asteroids and things. And Space just, slugs. Yeah. Um. They'd be crazy to fall us into a <laughs> <laughs> asteroid field. <laughs> yeah, sure. um, I, that's actually the same one I picked uh, because it had this idea of. So one of the cool things about this faction is that you can reach back into uh, both naval history and uh, you know air aerial history of you know, aerial warfare and naval warfare, and draw inspiration from those things. And so there's there's these you know cool stories of. Navy's like been ambushed. We've got to do this desperate maneuver. If we can, you know, get through this perilous strait, then we're we're on the open seas and we can get away. Uh, actually, and that's another thing they use the term "open airs" uh, is is like uh, is airspace that is not controlled by a skyport. It's far enough away. So there's there's the idea of like here's here's the sovereign air of a particular skyport, but there's the open airs. Mm. There's different things that apply there. But uh, that touched on what uh. What I really like is when they use some of the historical references or just, just give it that little touch uh, of, of the idea of sort of the age of exploration or naval warfare of, you know, the 17th and 18th centuries and pretty fun stuff. Yeah. International waters. That's the phrase I was looking for. Don't <laughs> come up with it. Um, well, and it's, it's interesting because as time goes on, like the error, the errors um, are oftentimes just as dangerous as any sea would have been, right? They have mm-hmm. all sorts of things that, 
like this is a dangerous region because the winds are are you know particularly violent or like I don't know there's some weird floating island or something like that. There, there's just as many perils in the sky as there would be for explorers on the sea. Yeah. Um, there's those parallels. I think here too the the fact that they introduced the Grotbag Scuttlers. Um, I think there's both in these stories, but also in the models and and the hobbyists where we've seen this army and it's it's inspired so much. Like, yeah, going to the air captured a lot of imagination. Absolutely, and and so just seeing, you know, just thinking, broadening where we thought we could go in the mortal realms, and you see so many conversions. You know, Paul's has his take on Grotbag Scuttlers, and we've seen a few others, and Skaven, um, you know, uh, Ko uh, armies and Oric Pirate, Oric Pirate. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, there's just so many. Like, we put more things in those suits. We're like, hey, we want more boats in the air. Like if Age of Sigmar, if they tore it down and just made like skies of Sigmar, I think we'd probably be okay with it. It feels like a large part of the 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 player base or the the hobby base would be like, yeah, just give us sky ships and we'd be happy. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, you could just reproduce Dread, Dreadfleet, but like for the air instead, okay, right? There you go. I don't know much about Dreadfleet. I know Paul has it though. <laughs> well, speaking of Karadran technology falling into the wrong hands. Oh goodness. Uh, there's another story that I liked about the scrap of spill. There's a big mountain of rusty metal and underneath that scrap that that whole mountain was built on top of uh, a Karadran dreadnought named the Zangamindrung uh, and carried experimental weaponry and brought down during the Age of Chaos uh, squadrons. Of, so they decided to go in and kind of try and take it out, like to come back and rescue it. Well, mm-hmm. that didn't go as planned. They were able to like reveal it or uh, you know, like blow enough stuff up that they could confirm that it was there. Uh, but they got, uh, uh, they got chased away and did not, uh, were not able to recover it. And in my head, they've, rev- I'm sure that I don't know if the iron, the, the grots there, or the green skins there had any clue that it was there, but now they do. And it feels like now they have the ability to resurrect this dreadnought and orcs and, and more goblins in the air with experimental weapons. Seems like it's a possibility in the future. And they'll paint it red and it'll go fast. Yeah. It will go fast. So I, I like to tie, again, tying something that we've already heard about, seen, or thought about, and then now it's just got another purpose in the story or connects another thing. Well, and I think one of the other interesting things about the Battle Tome is that it talks about these larger ships, right? We've seen pictures of them before, um, dreadnoughts, and we've been mentioned before, but we start getting an idea of the actual industry of the mining itself. We're talking about these much larger harvester ships and what happens when they designate a, a field uh, as as theirs. Um, and I, I particularly liked just that specific details, the specific details that allow us to be able to envision what happens when this is going on, right? And they're really focusing a lot on exploration at this point. And um, the exploration is because of the the Garak Tormun, which we had kind of mentioned before, which is when Nagash creates the Nadir, it creates this just mass confusion as the winds of magic just shift completely. It's their term for the Necroquake. Exactly. And this the ether gold fields that were here have moved who knows where, and now they have to go out and find everything. And this is definitely a new thing from the last battle tome. Um, this is moving forward into the perpetual now and the perpetual now for the Caradron overlords is everything is new. Everything has to be rediscovered. New claims. Yeah. New claims. 
even though everybody talks about how the fact that ether gold is never supposed to run out they have lost significant portions of their mining they've lost significant portions of their fleets it talks about uh Bariknar has lost a fifth of their fleet in the garak torment so this is a huge like devastating event that's happening and yet for every like claim that they've lost it, it it's also a time for great discovery as you sort of allude, allude to um because there are new claims to be made mm-hmm. for every uh ether gold uh, vein that sort of floated away on the winds a new one maybe has floated back in in some other place and so there is a mad gold rush literally aether gold rush um mm-hmm. to go and restake new claims where claims did not exist before mm-hmm. and maybe it was you know tangentially like related to a previous claim but like ah that's not yours anymore it's different yep. it's a new one and so that means that there's opportunity for change and advancement for each of these skyports mm-hmm. to reclaim stuff that maybe it was belonged to someone else before but not no no no, no now it's different yeah. um so it all is not lost i think somewhere it says in the in the battle tome that like uh i forget what, what they even say but the p- point is is that in great times of great strife there's great opportunity to be um, had as well mm. um and so they are very optimistic about it they don't despair at the situation they realize mm. right when the change brings opportunity for advancement um which they 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 hop on like it's a it's an exciting time to yeah. be a and one of those times if somebody loses a spot on the council and somebody else gains because of that shift in mm-hmm. um wealth and who owns what i think zilfin ends up gaining a ton of stuff because of their quick ships other cases where and uh, I don't have the spot where it's all tracked, but like one group of, of Crydon are transporting people in kind of the wake of the Necroquake mm-hmm. and are, they can't pay to keep going the rest of the way. So we dropped them off. <laughs> yeah. In you chaos know. infested wastes. Yeah. So like there's it, it's like uh, to your, to your point, Davey of like uh, in that, in that strife, like what is how you respond to tribulation definitely formed to them coming out of um you know the age of chaos but then even in this necroquake it kind of further kind of sees what's the character of these these baraks in response to the necroquake um i think that leads really well into one of our listener questions from mr mephisto he asks if the ko have a stock market and i think he specifically said stock market which i don't get the joke (laughs) i don't know uh but But i want to properly represent his question Uh, fair it's i think it's memed Stonk is a meme for stock in uh, in modern internet. Mm, I have no interest in that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I would say, lore wise, there's not. We have not seen specifically a stock market, but I would argue that they indu- they indeed do have a stock market. But the stocks are the admirals. They are the the magnates, the lord magnates, the individuals that have the wealth, and you as a young Arcanaut, will tie your fortune to a specific captain or to a Lord Magnet if you're lucky. And as his fortunes rise and fall, so do yours. And this is represented kind of well in some of the Black Library books. And it talks about how when the Garak Tormund happened, uh, one of the things that happened was in Barak Nar, the docks were almost overrun by Nighthaunt, and they were defended by the Grunstock as the last line of defense. And so the city was saved, but 50 companies went bankrupt immediately, right? So there isn't a stock market per se as in like a New York stock exchange, but because we have these powerful individuals, we do have you buy stock, as it were, mm-hmm. in 
an admiral by signing on to their ship or they're buying out your charter. And if they do well, you do well. If they do poorly, you do poorly. Yeah. I, I'll say it's not called out specifically as existing, but if you wanted to say that your Skyport had one, I'd totally buy it. would be something that they would create. But yeah. you would have to instead call it the, the grunt stock market, right? Sure. Is that what you'd have to? <laughs> Thank you. Um, so that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in, in this sort of post-necroquake world. Um, a couple other listener questions sort of tie into this a little bit. Um, Koros from our Discord channel, by the way, if you ever Scar want Brand's to listen. Scarbrand's Daddy? Uh, yeah, Scarbrand's Daddy. Oh, yeah, you, you know him. Okay. Uh, <laughs> if you ever wanted to ask a question of, of this illustrious podcast, you could do so whenever we put the call out in our Discord channel. There is no rhyme or reason as to when I do it. So you just have to be there all the time, like all, like all of us leave. are. Yeah. Never leave us. Uh, please leave there. Um, but uh, Kuros did ask you, do you think they will play, um, they being the KO, will play a more significant part in the lore moving forward? And then also, I'll, I'll throw in Paven's question too, and we can talk, both of, talk about both of them. Paven, from the hit podcast uh, the breakout show of 2019, uh, Dogs of Warcraft. Thank you. Thank uh, any new plot developments or teasers about where their narrative is going? So both of those are looking forward. So this is where we're at now uh, in the, the again, post-Necroquake world. What, what role do we think they're going to play in the future? Is there any hints or anything that we saw in this book? I don't think so. Well, number one, <laughs> Brock Rungson was my third pick for the draft for moving this, the plot going forward. So I'm hoping so. Sure. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Uh, there's an advancement of the campaign coming up soon, mm-hmm. so yeah, there's that. Uh, I, I feel like there's um, <laughs> there's room for some more solidification of like uh, t- their technology falling into other armies' hands, or uh, an exchange of ideas where we either get more armies in the sky, or this is how you know the other things get advanced. So I think there could be that that element of kind of their biggest asset or the biggest interesting thing about them is their technology advancement. So I think maybe there's a space for that. I'd I'd say two things. One is that this new push after, after the uh, ether gold seams have been blown all over the new push, this uh, uh, challenge that has become opportunity means that they're pushing and exploring. There's a chance they're going to, you know, pop in somewhere or encounter something that hasn't been interacted with as much increases the odds of that. And the other significant one is that of these six uh, major skyports that are part of the um, part of the ruling council, one of them for the very first time has left the realm of metal. It's no mm-hmm. longer in Shaman. They're not sure where it is, but it's somewhere super shadowy, and you can only get there through a realm gate. Yeah, uh, and that feels significant. And the implication is that they're in Ulgu, mm-hmm. um, which would make sense. The the shadow city is what it's uh, sometimes referred to as. And uh, we still don't know very much about Ulgu. Um, And so they, by retreating there, they may be forging some alliance or finding something or, you know, there's all kinds of things that could uh, be fallout from that, uh, from that major thing. And as far as, as far as events that are significant to the overlord culture at large, like this is a really big deal Mm. uh, for them. So Mm -hmm. to build off your, your first point about they're in explorer mode, basically, if you needed to introduce you being GW needed to introduce a new thing that hadn't really been discovered yet. I'll be GW. Okay, cool. All right. So for this story, Eric's GW, um, but like, if you needed a way to discover that, which hadn't been discovered before, like these, these 
Karajan Overlord explorers would be one way to introduce them. They're going on an expedition, they're trying to find more gold, and oh, they've stumbled upon this thing. So it can serve as a story impetus. Um, they can drive that plot forward in a direction to find some new things. So who knows what, what they can discover out there. I'm going to take the low-hanging fruit and say Aether War pushes the narrative forward even from what's in the Battle Tome. Um, I haven't read it yet. I, I know. But, Rub it in, why don't you? Uh, it, it definitely starts to move it forward, and it places us back in this spiral crux, um, which is a place that has a ton of power. It's in the center of a realm, and there's a god beast that has been turned to gold there. I mean, unless I'm mistaken, it is. I mean, the god beast has been turned to gold. This is that uh, Paradise Lost you were talking about. Right? Yep, exactly. So we're going right back to where the Caradron started in this new box set. And I think there's a lot of potential for that to move forward into some new territory. Um, much, much less... Yeah. Exploring back what happened to those civilizations that went down. Don't they right? Golem kind. Where is Golem kind? Where are the Pharaoh mages? Go- There's a lot Go- of potential Golem there. Kind. Is it? Um, don't they talk about here and uh, returning back to one of the the mountains uh, and mm-hmm. and trying to excavate and see if there's anybody still fighting? Uh, yeah. You know, fighting down in the depths or whatever. So we might find. Yeah. In addition to Golem, we might find new Dwarden. Or, or or remade Dwarden. Or whatever uh, they space. have become. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Or Pharaoh Mages. I mean, like... What I, I was going to say is, what if... So, Karadran Overlords are, what if what if Dwarves lived in the sky? What if we found Karadran Overlords that lived underground? <laughs> what would those... I can't even imagine. What would Dwarden in the like? ground. Uh, if you want to do Pharaoh Mages right now, there's probably... You take a uh, Cities of Sigmar priest. I mean, it may just... It's a cool thing where they can take this term and it could be something totally new or it could just be a way of referring to, yeah. uh, you know, mages that specialize in shaman and magic. Balthazar guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you guys have brought up a couple of good points talking about the, like, how, well, no, I mean, no, just like one or two uh, of how... <laughs> Um, these Karajan overlords, it seems like an afterthought, but I'm still going to bring it up about how this faction's kind of like organized or how it's structured. Um, do you guys have any thoughts about some of that section of the book about how, like, how they live themselves, um, like in their, in their barracks or guilds or other, uh, seed words I'm dropping on you right now? Uh, if we go to page, if you have the battle tome. Page 16 and 17 and I of hope, the Battle Tome. I hope all of our listeners always have the book directly in front of them while we lis- while they listen to our episodes. Page 16 and 17 are one of my favorite two pages of any Battle Tome that I've read in Age of Sigmar. Ooh, tell us why. So when we started Age of Sigmar, the question was, where are the farmers, right? These two pages explain where are the common people of the Caradron. Hmm. And they explain it in great detail, and they really gave me just a specific, fantastic image in my head of how everything works. I, I, I really appreciated the Ether Endrin mansions that they're talking about. This whole, they're talking about a story of one specific Lord Magnate, and he built his mansion and placed it directly above the factory that his father was working in, so he could literally uh, he look down. In, yeah. yeah. It it there it really is this like rags to riches narrative that they're pushing with the way these admirals are moving forward because that's a definite strong point of this culture is that because it is a meritocracy, bloodline doesn't matter. What matters is how well you move forward. 
And one of the things that we kind of haven't talked about um, is that you have to be chosen to become an Arcanaut. And there's also this other mercenary company called the Grunstock. And everything in Caradron society is focused on being able to make this muster. And once the muster happens, then anybody that succeeds can go anywhere in, and do anything. Yeah, in usual terms, I will I will mitigate your your uh, superlatives. I wouldn't say everything, but it, it's a big pressure for a young Caradron. Uh, they can go to the academy and they get three chances mm-hmm. to pass muster. And if they don't, then you got to find some other role. Mm-hmm. If uh, they fall behind, they can always catch up to muster. I was sitting there like, who else is trying to make a muster joke right now? I'm sure Not someone me. is. <laughs> High five across the room. But because of the Garrick Tornum, they've lost so many people. They're remustering again. They're allowing people to try out again. So there's another new potential because of the Garrick Tormund that allows more story points to move forward. Sure. 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 I mean, I think what's interesting too is that, I mean, there's this ideal of what, you know, like you can be what you want to be or, you know, by your own merits. But the, I mean, we've seen this system before. It's still who you know, right? It's still, um, you know, connections are as important. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of different roles outside of just the the ship life, which was really cool. That there's support for you know working on the docks. There's support for all the things that go inside. I mean, there's somebody's got to run the you know got to work in the factories and all that kind of stuff. And so there's I don't know maybe I don't know if that's room to expand into you know the exploring the exploring in the military are definitely the more interesting parts of it. Um, but the fact that there are, yeah, uh, highfalutin dudes in towers. Great. Yeah, it'd be great. I've not read Prophet's Ruin, which is the follow-on. Yeah, uh, it would be great, and this may happen in there. I don't know to visit a skyport and like spend some time in it. We yep. haven't seen that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we're talking about people working in the factories, people working on the docks, every aspect of Caradron society is defined by the code, right? Uh, and we have another listener question in here from Tim King Tristan. Good job. How does the code impact storytelling? And I think we've covered a bit of that when we talk about the muster, when we talk about how the people who work in the factories must live, when we talk about the mansions. But what it also does is it allows you to have a strong center to work your character's actions around. But even without a god, even without a faith, even without a religion, you can make good choices and make bad choices. And when we read um, Iron Dragon by C.L. Werner, one of the focal points is how, because this is a meritocracy, and the meritocracy allows even people who are on a boat to peacefully mutiny over their admiral, mm-hmm. that you are allowed all these interesting narrative arcs that would never happen in a free guild army. Right, they would never happen in an Illumineth army, theoretically, when we see that happening, because it is meritocracy based, and you don't have the power of a god that tells you that you are the one who's doing it. It's just whether or not you got the prophet. Yeah, I mean, they talk about that where if if there is one of these peaceful mutinies or whatever, it's not even. It's hard to imagine, but they say there's not even any shame to you know getting demoted. I'm like, mm, well, I, it might feel some, but I mean, they it, it's not. You're not suddenly outcast. All right, you're a member of the crew. You want back into your captain's spot? Show it. it. Yeah, yeah, earn it. I'll, I'll add just one more thing, too, in terms of the code, is that we definitely see 
a lot of character of the different barracks uh, defined by how they interpret the code. Thring mm-hmm. is very um, old school, literal, um, you know, read it as it is, right? Um, by the letter. And you get Mornar who lives in the gray. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think if you were, you know, to tell a story about a Dwarden uh, or a, a Kraden overlord in a, one of the first things you pr- should probably do is not just define which barrack they come from, but how they interpret the code, how they navigate that with other people is a, is a foil to, I think any KO should be measured by in storytelling. And I think if, if we were to see one in an, in an RPG in the future, what? Uh, that would be one of those defining background things is how, what does the code mean to them? How do they interpret it? Yeah. I can't even imagine. Um, and it, when, when telling stories, it's sometimes nice to have a set of rules, mm-hmm. nebulous as they may be, so that you can go out of your way to break them like, and, and make a compelling story that way. And so knowing that there is some sort of structure that you can, you know, a, a box that you can think outside of when dealing with these stories, when, when dealing with the KO stories, is instructive and, and, and helpful in, in constructing an interesting story, um, I think. Well, and when we're talking about the code, there are two pages in the Battle Tome that are literally just devoted to amendments yeah. that are proposed to the code since the Garak Torment. So, this what pages are those, Paul? Uh, that is page nine and t- or ten and eleven. Excuse me. So that that is my favorite spread in the book mm-hmm. for two reasons. One, it devotes a ton of space to the code, um, and it you know there, there's specifically. Uh, so what we got articles, amendments, and footnotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to get the specific numbers wrong, but I think it says something that like there's just seven articles in the code, but they have they have many points within it, and then amendments to that, and then footnotes to that, uh, and they tie that into the rules later. Um, and I bet you there's some resource, and I I didn't think to go look for it, but somebody somewhere has to have compiled as much of the code as been put down been and like yeah. try try to you know piece it together. That. I would love to read that. It seems cool. Mm. There's sub amendments. Um, what's that? There's even sub amendments. Right. Yep. Uh, 327B. <laughs> but that that page uh, gives us a look. I, I, I think it was a great thing to put in there because the code is so essential to how they do things. And like, here's a bunch of examples of that. And then here are amendments that were brought to these mm-hmm. and, and the why, basically. And that's real fun. And they have a picture of all these different... Uh, individuals from different skyports mm-hmm. uh, including significantly a couple a uh, couple female dwarden yep. Barsha, harold's daughter from barak nar yeah and magbeth isram from barak warnar which uh which i love because if you think of this if if this like super capitalist meritocratic uh society is there then they're not going to say well you're you're female obviously you can't do this like hey if you can hack it mm-hmm. do it so I, I love, and this is something that wasn't in the last one, uh, last book. I think yeah. it was a great step forward. That makes sense. Um, yeah, so my, my favorite spread in the book is right there. Well, and the interesting thing is that, we'll be the judge it of that. moves the narrative forward from the last book, where mm-hmm. one of the amendments is about being able to water down your ale against the free cities, right? As the Mornar one. Yeah. Right? So playing on a trope, right, of like, yeah. oh, they, they brew beer because they're Dwarden. But another one says that, there is now a specific group of individuals who are devoted to specializing in fighting against Night Haunt particularly. And they have their own special uniform that they wear. Uh, you're talking about the Grunstock mm-hmm. uh, company. They're, they're all in black armor. They're mm-hmm. specifically designed to uh, be stopping ethereal types. Death the, company? The Black Marines is what they're called. 
Yeah, yeah. So another uh, amendment to the code was something to the effect of like, well, if 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 you're at war, it is utterly illegal for anyone to do business with the target of the whoever you're you're at war it's with. Economic sanctions on yeah, top of your, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rego- uh, for as long as they draw breath, and they needed to amend the code because there was a problem. Because uh, when you're dealing with uh, OCR bone reapers, ain't nobody breathing over there. <laughs> um, so they needed to include them because um, otherwise, some shady individuals were still trying to strike some deals with the OCR bone reapers, coming yeah. up with all sorts of stocks of bones and trading. Uh, you know, yeah. to get whatever they can out of them. Yeah. Well, and it, it makes sense too. I mean, they're they're uh, relatively new to this, so they figure out how they'd interact. But you can you can believe that it wouldn't have come up before. I mean, maybe maybe vampires you would have traded with, yeah. but like like you know hordes of zombies. I'm not trading with them. And you, know, you would like, think when you're drawing up a code, you'd know not to write stuff like as long as they draw breath. Like you right. know where you live, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but still, it, sometimes you gotta gotta amend that code. Well, uh, but it also feels like the powerful are determining what the weak shall do, right? Or they're trying to close these loopholes in the in the code. And that's a, another interesting expression of the dynamic that exists within this well, meritocracy. Every time you try and – I don't know that they're there to try and close loopholes. Well, I'm sure as many are trying to close as trying to open new ones. Yeah, uh, Beric Thring really doesn't like loopholes. <laughs> no, yeah, it's awesome. I love, I love that, like, you know, to, to avoid any spurious, you know, further amendments, we yep. put forth that no more amendments may ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, so a few more things before we get to the barracks, which is one of the most interesting parts of the book. But um, another way that, harkening back to sort of how society works and lives, we sort of talked about the, the, the underlings of society or the, just the regular people and the different jobs. However, you can aspire to uh, a more interesting life uh, as part of the, I don't know, the, the military arm of uh, a, a, a barrack. Um, and a lot of these folks... See the world! Yeah, well, a lot of these folks can be sort of broken out into their respective guilds that would res- uh, represent some of the, the, the models that we see on, on the table um, that sort of corresponds to, like, a lot of our hero models. There's the... Um, there's the... Is it just called the Endrin? Endrineer. Endrineer Guild. Guild, yep. And so that is uh, the combination of the Endrin Masters... Uh, who are in charge of like maintaining and and uh, fixing ships, um, but then also their engine rigor sort of that's, proteges, yeah. uh, the uh, interns or what have you, um, and that's the basically the sc- this is the school that teaches you how to do so. So that was one <laughs> one, one of my favorite guilds. Were there other guilds that sort of grabbed you guys' attentions that you enjoyed? Uh, I like the Nav League. Uh, it exists there. You if you think of. Uh, how valuable an asset that is to uh, to this, and I think it would have been an easy thing to overlook when you were designing these. And you're like, oh yeah, like the people who make ships, but like, uh, you know, you think of the age of exploration, and you think of, of these things. I always and how, do. How important it is to have somebody who is either able to make a map of where you're going if you're if it's you know somewhere you've never been, or you know to chart you uh, a, a safe course if you're going through something that people know. Like that, that's a real cool skill for them to. have noticed and being like yeah this, this has got to be an important part of this society mm-hmm. so who do we know that's part of the nav league uh, what what uh model model i guess is for lack of Hero? a better word yeah, yeah. i mean they, there is the navigator mm-hmm. model um doesn't he have the, like the, the bunch lenses? of lenses yeah. and yeah he's pretty cool compasses and uh any other guilds and then you got companies the, that grabbed you guys the aether chemist guild Ooh. uh rule of three here um, and, uh, they are working the concoctions. They're experimenting with, uh, aether gold and other chemicals. And, uh, you know, they can, uh, change the air around them, 
Uh, they can suck the air out of their enemies' lungs and... And also uh, make a mean uh, leader for a Underworld's uh, Warband. Really cool oxygen bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, they also talk about uh, chartered companies as well. Hmm. So these are individual companies that are formed in order to sell a, pr- a specific product. Um, th- there's a little fun story here about the Igrin Kaz Aeronautics. It, for example, is renowned for the quality of its surge injunction endrins, which utilize liquidized ether gold to create the vessel supercharged bursts of speed. Um, and how they are now present in all five, except for Barrack Thring of the major ports, because Barrack Thring is like, you're being wasteful and we don't like this, right? Like, so here's the deal. Uh, we've been. I'm in the middle of a Fast and the Furious marathon uh, currently. Uh, <laughs> you and go. So this is, you uh, go. This is very squarely. And when you get I, done, I, you just start it again. Yeah, yeah. please do. Yeah. Um, and this is very NAS-like uh, <laughs> yeah. because every single one of those movies has a NAS uh, uh, injector. <laughs> so, so, so. You got to hit it when you're shifting to 13th gear. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, you, so you've seen them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so those are some of the guilds that make up uh, the, I guess, more of the character hero models of, of the army. And I... Since we're here, we might as well talk about it. Do you guys have any favorite models or units uh, from the, the KO range, whether it's model or how they play on the tabletop or their lower background? Um, now's the time to bring it challenging up. Challenging for Eric because he takes every model and creates it entirely from he hates other all, models. Yeah. Yeah. I Let's see. I guess for models, uh, I've built and painted a uh, frigate, which I really liked. Uh, I'm excited to do an ironclad. And what I'm excited about that is They've done such a good work, and I think I've, I've maybe talked about this before. They've done such a good job of, of uh, designing those models to be functional. So, hey, I've got this cupola up here that uh, Navigator is sitting in. Well, how would he get up there? Oh, well, we'll put steps in the struts. Uh, okay, we've got a ramp that comes out. Well, they have to jump over the side. No, we'll create these hinges. That, and, you know, like a, you can see that it's a hinge spot that would swing open. Uh, here's a guy who's like you know, repainting the hole or addressing, you know, like they've, they've thought of all these things to make them look like they're functional and real. Uh, and I think that really shines in the, in the sky ships that they do, but the ironclad in particular. Right on. Eric. Um, yeah, I mean, my issue is that I always have to do something different. And so um, what I, what I love about the range is that they didn't just come out with one boat. Like it maybe could have easily just been like one, big boat as the centerpiece and everything else is, you know, just rides in a boat or doesn't ride in the boat. Um, but they've got the three different boats. And I think, um, you've said the word boat, but I think the, the, everybody in the first book wanted that gunstruck gun hauler to, to be the best. Cause it's just a zippy little thing. And I think, uh, or, it, you know, be more skilled than the latest book. It, I think it is super useful and it's going to get a lot of play. We're going to see much of the more of these little zippy boats, uh, flying around and, and, you know, doing what they need to do. And so, yeah, I really like that that model. Cool. Paul, I, what do you got? I enjoy the Endron Master with dirigible suit. Yeah. I actually made a conversion of my Endron Master in the last edition. Uh, I added a balloon on the back of him, an Endron on the back of him, and then like gave him some arms to do like predicted it. Cool things. So it. called it uh, ten points. Pulled it. Nailed it. Pulled it. Um, I get that. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and I did get a copy of Ether War for the Caradron specifically. So. Um, I really enjoy the Endron Master just because he's like fun and funky and really exhibits what's going on with the race, but like pushes it a little bit farther. But what I really enjoy about the Caradron is that even though this is a new model designed for an existing model line, because they were all designed to such a very specific and intentional 
design note. Even though we're getting a new model, it doesn't feel like it doesn't belong to part of the army at all. Everything is plastic. Everything fits in really well. And it just it looks like an amazing centerpiece in this army now. So he looks awesome. Plus, I love the way that he's like getting pushed backwards. Dynamic. Like, he's just yeah. floating because I mean, I don't know what he's propelled by. Like he's on his floaty balloon thing. So his feet are kicked out and he's obviously lighting dudes in, up. In my head, every time those balloon guys shoot, they just go the opposite direction. We <laughs> <laughs> oh, should have put a pr- pr- propulsion system in this. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, my favorite guy, similar actually, is the the engine riggers um because i like that they're sort of the underlings and they're, st- they're still kind of learning how to use their balloons a little bit so they're like oh they're trying to chase like ships down be like no no, no i gotta s- seal that that cut or something like that um because they are under the tu- tutelage of the engine master basically mm-hmm. so they're flying around uh doing what they can to keep the ships uh in ship shape um, <laughs> and and the, and the admirals are yelling down you got you got to fix that hole and they're saying oh we're we're trying um as you know the battle's flying all around them and they're sitting there trying to weld like a, a seam or something well, like that but it's another cool thing where it's a it's a functional thing like we, we want to be able to make repairs on the fly uh so on literally the fly. on the fly <laughs> so uh with with uh <laughs> conventional navies we'd have uh underwater welders who can you know go in and do some spot repairs or whatever the case may be these these guys, there's a reason for them to be flying around. You got to be able to get down on the side of the ship and and uh, do those repairs without going back to dry dock, sky dry dock, yeah, sky, sky dock. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. I don't begrudge them taking what would be a, a, a fairly mechanical, like um, utilitarian, like job role, and then also making it a combat thing too, because they can, their drills and their their saws and whatever. I mean, nobody wants to get hit by one of those, so they're still combat ready. Because mm-hmm. I mean. Everybody needs to be combat ready, presumably in the moral realms. Like, there's sure. no room for anybody who isn't really no. willing to chop some guy up. Um, so, I like how they sort of serve that double role, but they again have a very functional uh, job out there on on the ships. And you don't get honestly think of the other armies. You don't get too much of that elsewhere. Like everybody's always you know a, a BA like fighter type. Yeah. Um, but these guys are actually you know they're they're working stiffs. Well, like, and they they do this with more than just them. If you look at the Arknot models uh a lot of their a lot of their melee weapons uh, especially the the axes mm-hmm. uh they'll have components so you can see there's like a, a socket on the end so oh. they could use it as a wrench or on the other end you know they love wrench pieces or, or a screwdriver and like That's so they cool. can i noticed those yeah, yeah so their their weapons are all sort of dual purpose mm-hmm. and that harkens back a little bit to you know traditional dwarven weaponry which was axes and hammers so yeah, yeah. You know, well, and picks, tools, right, right exactly yeah. so um that's kind of a cool callback too yeah um, anybody else have any other units or models they wanted to talk about? Because now we can talk about probably one of the more interesting parts of this book is the different... So, so the different skyports that all happen to be called barracks, right? Am I getting that terminology mm-hmm. right? Um, so these are the different... I, however, different army books have their sub-factions and their different sub... Uh, or, you know, organizations are from, from different realms sometimes or they have different, you know... Uh, ethoses or, or what have you. These are different skyports. Uh, mm-hmm. The main skyports of the... The um, six, six skyports that have seats on the Geldrad, which yep. is the overruling council oh, of everything. You found the name then. I did. Yeah, perfect. Um, Ridiculously, so, I'd used it earlier in the episode, forgot it in the middle <laughs> episode, and then came back and found it. Excellent. Um, so now let's, guys, let's talk about it's our favorite. That, it's that mid-podcast fugue state that you often go in after the puns are too heavy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Defensive. Protective. <laughs> let's talk about our favorite one of those. I'm going to have Davey go first so no one takes his favorite from him. Mm, yeah. So Beric Mornar is uh, what I've got mine painted up as. Uh, and very I, nicely. Thank you. Uh, and I, I like, 
uh, I like that they, so I guess I should describe them. They're the shadow city. They're the ones most likely to uh, push the limits with the code, uh, find the loopholes. Uh, in fact, this is what Eric was referencing was shortly after the conference of Madralta, uh, they're like, what is going on? Like there's still raids going on and they were, uh, they were disguising their ships as, as other, they're finding like, well, like no, and, and, you know, the, the code might've said like, no ship in the colors of another skyport may fire on any other ship from another skyport. And they're like, cool, we'll paint <laughs> ourselves up as you and then we'll, we'll get you. Uh, and so they, they, uh, but it's a valuable role, right? Like you, you think, um, you know, there's Thring who are the traditionalists, uh, and they're, they're going to try and hold things from progressing. These, these are the ones that will, you know, hone the edge of the code, like kind of test it, give it that trial by fire to like, all right, well, you know, you won't know where it's going to break down unless somebody tries to find it. Yeah, they're always so poking in front the play of the playtesters yeah. of the uh, of the code, right? They're so trying they, to break it. Yeah. yeah, try try to break the code, and then uh, and then it becomes stronger as a result. Um, but I, I and I like them because it feels like they they embody you know sort of the more because they're willing to push the edge, push the limit. Uh, I think it opens your options up, like, and that's that's why when I was. Uh, when we were doing our our background for that campaign, I was like, "Yeah, these these guys would be willing to you know trade with Greenskins if they if they found uh, enough reason to do so. Like they they have no scruples, and I like I like the idea of uh, the sort of smuggling aspect, right? Mm-hmm. Like that exists in you know high seas narratives and mm-hmm. pirates and smugglers, and they get to they get to be in that spot. Uh, plus, they're doing the interesting stuff right now. Yeah, Completely. and I will say uh, while we're talking about the Geldrad. Uh, one thing is that so there's 18 seats on it. Mm-hmm. There's a big shakeup, and Mornar has risen the highest. They used to have one seat on the Geldrad. They're up to three. Um, and uh, opportunists. Yeah, right? yeah. I feel yeah. like there's probably an assassination in there somewhere. Well, Might be. And yeah. one of the little Lord tidbits about Mornar that I really like is that they have their own black market that they're running. Like they can get the stuff that nobody else can get. Yeah, mm-hmm. which fun. is super fun. Yeah. Can so so I remember being. Uh, thrilled by their like so you'd mentioned the shadow city before and how it's sort of hard to hard to get to can we get into specifics on that because that's i think one of my favorite like i think it's impossible to get to at the moment uh there's a specific there's a swirling shadowy realm gate and uh, where where it was right everyone everyone used to know where it was and now it's not there no more yeah Yeah. and not a possible to get to you can go through that gate and then a black ship comes and escorts you back to or to where the city is but there's no way for you to yeah. I don't know if they put a whole it's, it's the hood over the, the whole thing. It's the equivalent of being blindfolded. Yeah. And then, so they, nobody, nobody's quite sure where they're sitting. And so they, folks would put the request in, like, where are you? And they're like, mm, not going to tell you. Yeah. Uh, well, if you want to find us, like, yeah. you come through this this portal. Yeah. Uh, well, and to, like, tie it back into that age of exploration, right? Like, it's a, it's a port completely surrounded by mist. Just happens to be in the realm of shadow, but, like, this whole, light, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, what if it was light instead? Just messing with people. Psych. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Eric, do you got a favorite? port um yeah i think there's two that i really like but i think the one that i like the most is zilfin because of the pure love of sailing like they're the finest sailors they're the most efficient at riding the winds um and when i you know early on when i was trying to create this elven version uh of the KO and, you know, talking to, to Davey about like which one would work. And we always think of elves as being really fast, but I also like just that idea that, you know, if you have to skirt some wind 
right? You think of your, when you go down a, a river, there's uh, buoys, there's a green and a red and you stay between them. And, uh, you know, you stay in the deepest part of the water and it's the easiest to sail and it's the safest that these guys are the ones who could probably get the closest to that edge of that, that wind or that spot. And they just know how to ride it to get back in or whatever. So they're going to maybe take the more risks in the sailing itself. They're going to go into the, the harshest places, the most uh, turbulent winds and still be able to come back out of it. So that's going to just, that gives them that edge and getting someplace faster, further. And so the exploration of it is really what intrigues me uh, about them. Um, what else to know about them when after the, the Necroquake, uh, they had the, the kind of the, best sailing ability to ride through it and, and save more of their ships. Um, and so that, which means that now that the exploration's back on, they're kind of the, able to kind of respond to that a little they bit They gained a seat. They're mm -hmm. up to five from four. Um, yeah. And then... Uh, like the scorekeeping. Thank you. Keep it up. <laughs> I think they have one of the coolest pictures in the book because the picture of their city, uh, the one that's attached to their text, has one of these huge gargantuan ships oh. we don't have models of. Um, in very front and center. And then what looks to be maybe a harvester from the ether gold mining as well, kind of coming into the picture from the bottom right. And it has this wonderful picture of the sky lanes crossing over the port itself, which is super cool. Yep. Yeah. And it, there's, it's in passing reference of that. They're like the biggest boat we see on the table is an ironclad, but there's much larger out there. Mm. Uh, they're just not as efficient. And so they're not as often used for war. Yep. So that's that, I think just for that pure, like the, the excellence in, in the, in captaining ships and sailing ships. They're very, um, obviously they're very, they're very boaty. These, these guys and hearkening back to another, uh, tomb King Christian question he had for us. He wanted to know, uh, if you guys had a boat, what would you call it? David, did you name your boat? I did. Uh, it was uh, the Swift Lady, I think, or the Swift Wren. Uh, Wren is the Duarden term for lady. So. Nerd. <laughs> I got this. Uh, I only have a frigate built right now for my uh, Dukaridron, and it's called the Aether Dance. Um, very swift, and but the the ironclad that I'm going to build is called math, the Mathlon's reach. Uh, kind of how far can Mathlon's hand you know, get is where their ship is. Sure. Paul, what would you name your boat or uh, what did you name your boat? Skitter sailor. Ooh, skitter sailor. And, um, my boat is, yeah, boy. <laughs> mm. I'm on a, <laughs> I'm um, on a boat. All right, Paul, what, what was your, uh, skyport? Uh, Urbaz. I really like it. It's the, they are the traders extraordinaire. And they are known as the Market City. Um, they just have a ton of this mercantile aspect to their city that I really appreciate. Um, they are the ones who have the story of abandoning a whole bunch of people uh, in the middle of chaos infested waste because eh, they ran out of money. So, you know, we're not going to keep carrying them. Um, the other thing that really is fun to me is they have the they boast the greatest sky fishing fleets, um, and it says its code rights long ago won code claims for several cloud banks rich in life. So that seems really fun, the idea of having this subsistence fishing within the clouds themselves, and we haven't delved into that as much. But again, it's one of those everyday life where they get food from. 
where do they, you know, are they able to subsist? Yeah. So. This was the other one I, I was kind of waving between because my, my Drukari drawn f- hunt these giant sky sails and, oh, and they yeah. talk a lot about sure. these, um, I mean, the, the megalodons, the, you know, sky sharks and stuff like that. Like there's just so much of this air life. Um, and that's really cool. These guys also push the boundaries quite a bit like yeah. Mornar. They try and they, they go a little bit more risky with their aether chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, try and get, they, they're the one trying to get that, that squeeze the juice, uh, yeah. the, every last bit of power out of that. Yeah. So that's kind of, and they have a super cool in-game mechanic. And I know we usually don't talk about that, but their, their port allows them to use ether gold shares mm-hmm. without having a penalty. Mm-hmm. Which is a cool just expression of the background. They're so rich. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's I, I enjoyed that quite a lot. How many seats on the uh, whatever do they have? Uh, they actually lost some. I think they're down to one. Oh bummer. Um, yep. All right, my favorite Skyport is uh, one that they call Barrack. I can't say this word. Thring. Thring. Got it. You right. said it. That thring's true. That's my jam. Um, they are. The traditionalists. I'm hesitant to use the word um, like conservative with modern day connotations, but and to some degree, yeah. And that they they harken back to a, a simpler reading of the code, or maybe a more literal reading of the code. Um, they when we talk about like the Karadran overlords kind of being like godless, I, you wouldn't necessarily call these folks godless. They don't maybe necessarily worship like their previous ancestor gods, but they do acknowledge them and maybe respect them to some degree. And so they don't want to forget some of that. Um, they uh, have maybe closer ties to some of the previous incarnations of the Duarden. They have maybe a closer tie to like the fire slayers or the, the dispossessed. Um, and they're just not as interested in the newfangled uh, uh, technology that, you know, all the darn kids are using these days. Um, they respect and uh, so hold, hold dear um, sort of the older uh methods which is crazy because like it's still like sky ships yeah. flying in the sky but you know they like them rickety and a little bit more uh, ancient um <laughs> sturdier yeah so tested I, I like reliable i like these guys because i don't know maybe hmm. it rubs me a little bit the wrong way how how quickly the karadran were able to sort of abandon their previous lifestyles and like sort of take to the skies and sort of leave everyone behind mm-hmm. and these folks are maybe the closest to at least having some connection or remembrance sure. to from where they where they came from they, they you know they remember where they came up um aaron we're not going to quit the podcast we'll keep coming over and recording I with am, you we're not i am you. projecting a little bit um <laughs> but some of the cool things about them i think we did talk about but their like refining mechanisms for aether gold like isn't nearly as polluting um as some of the newer processes because they're a little bit more i don't know what you uh, analog i guess they're not as sort of steeped in some of the new technologies that kick out um that much more pollution but they have like their own like their billows are still like manually used and mm-hmm. and because of that their their skies are are cleaner um, I think we talked about they, they take a very literal uh, interpretation of the code and they don't like folks taking advantage of it. I think it's interesting that they're more open to the other Dwarden, especially Fire Slayers, because they don't come from the same ancestry necessarily. Stock, like you yeah. have to reach further back to create that tie. So in some regards, I feel like there's an openness there that you don't get with the other ones mm-hmm. um, that kind of balances out that that stodginess or the, the fear of, of progression. Well, and they have connection to some of the other Dwarden ancestor gods, harkening back to even what we know is even before, um, and maybe I'm reading too much into this. I just saw some statues in the pictures of the, of well, the battle those, You talk about them revering the ancestors. They have some enormous statues in their skyport. Mm-hmm. And Paul, I, I was wondering, so I, 
obviously, so they've got Grungni is up at the top. Mm. Yep. Then you can see Grimnir. Yep. Well, Grimnir's not the next one. He's he's the he's two down, and then Valaya. Yeah. Yeah. Who, yeah. who uh, was consumed in the end times? Mm-hmm. There's another god there, and I don't recognize. I'm wondering if it's uh, uh, there's the. Or, or a dwarven god of death, and I cannot think of what from his like name the is. D- the dusty dwarfs from like the Josh Reynolds stories, like more, more yeah, recently, ages thing. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that was my best guess. I, I went looking around to try and find a uh, a rune for him because it's like mm-hmm. a triangle with lines coming off of it, but I uh, could not. Gazul, ah, Gazul yeah. was yeah. so uh, mm-hmm. that was that was my best guess. I know I read something that his rune is supposed to look like a stylized cave. Maybe that's what it is. If there's a listener out there who knows, let Tell us know. That would yeah. be awesome. Would love to know who that other. I. I Spent a fair amount of time trying to figure it out. And couldn't do it. <laughs> That's fair. People died. Sure. Mm-hmm. My kids didn't get lunch today because I was trying to. <laughs> <laughs> so with the two we didn't touch on, Baraknar, they're basically the capital city. And Barakzan was the first um, the first founded, as it were. It's known for its military might. Um, whereas Baraknar is the capital where the Gelgrad meets and it has... The, the most, steering hand. Yeah, a steering hand. Which, great on the term council. for that. Yeah. yeah. Turn um, in one. Turn is, in two, I mean. Is there, uh, is there any notable special characters that come from Barracknar? Yes. Oh, interesting. So we have Brock Grungson, who oh. is the richest of the Caradron overlords. Uh, he is the most successful, and he holds the most shares of Aether Gold at the moment. Uh, he's he's uh, Lord Magnate, which is as high as you can get without actually having a seat on the guild ride. Correct. Um, and Why doesn't he have a seat? He's too, too still up and coming. He is a Lord Magnate. Uh, so as you said, he is the most uh, power without being on the Geldrad. Uh, but in addition to Brock Grunkson, we also have a couple more named characters that are from Barracknar. And we have Bjorgen Thundrick from the Underworld's Warband and then Thundrick's Profiteers. Uh, so this is a cool kind of twist on just adding in an Underworld's Warband to a battle tome. Because they are named characters specific to Barracknar. So that's a cool way of theming your army is getting the, the Thunderworld's Warband and getting Brock himself. Sure. Uh, but we don't have any other characters named for any other port. So that's the Well, even even in the in the book at all, even, even if they don't have a model, were there any like characters in this battle tome that grabbed well, you guys? They specifically have a uh, there's a female Barrack Mornar, but she's a captain. She's, oh, she's not a captain, okay. Uh, gotcha. it's, it's in that call out page, but mm. uh, her picture just happens to be one of the one i think is coolest and she got this Convenient. face tattoo yeah and i was like yeah all right. <laughs> neat uh, yeah. very cool yeah. and the reason i'm pushing the subject is because listener pavement from the dogs of Warcraft podcast wanted to know if there are any other cool characters in the book uh, besides uh brock grunson yeah uh, uh, and the grunstock company is is a huge push in this book they're basically the navy seals of the caradron overlords or the, the special forces for those who don't get the reference uh, they are pretty much always described as being the last ones on the ground defending um, as everyone else tries to get away. Mm. Um, and they are armed with the most different weapons. So everyone can be equipped with a different weapon as far as the models are concerned. Um, and their boats are literally just escorts. They are there to zip around and take care of protecting the larger ships or to scout ahead. Or be gunships, you yeah. know, like heavily heavily armed speedy mm-hmm. i think it was like i mean i know that there's gyrocopters and gyro bombers but i think it was like the attack helicopter or you know mm-hmm. the, you know yeah the apache a, the a10 <laughs> or something like that you know sure yeah. sure sure um 
Harkening back to the the different uh, skyports, another listener question. Tristan also wanted to know uh, what uh, barrack felt the most lived in. Does anyone want to advocate for your favorite barrack as the most lived in, or maybe like identifiable? Oh, uh, there's uh, a spoiler. Uh, barrack Nar, if I'm not mistaken, is represented in one of the short stories hmm. uh, from Black Library, and so that to me feels the most lived in at the moment, having read that background. Cool. Mm. I think the um, Overlord's the Iron Dragon. I think there's Zilfin, but mm-hmm. it doesn't uh, doesn't tell you a lot in that one about it. It might be in the sequel. Yeah. Uh, I would say just reading in the background. I think um, Paul's pick of Urbaz, mm-hmm. like it had had what felt to be sort of the most like this is how the Skyport works or something like that. I, I mean, seems yeah. very quintessential to the sure. The other interesting <laughs> thing about this book is that you're we'll be the judge of that. <laughs> You're allowed to make your own Skyport, uh, as far as the rules are concerned. I don't need permission. For them. But there are a ton of lesser Skyports that are, like, name-dropped. Like, one of them is completely destroyed, but manned by the ghosts of of angry Dwarden. Mm. Um, there are several that were just destroyed in the Garaktoman, and there are other ones that are lost. Like, there's a whole history that is created behind what's going on at these six major skyports. And it's really fascinating because they talk about how the charter companies are in some of these other lesser ones and the Grunstock might be in some of these other lesser ones. And they really allow you to have kind of a mental exploration of what's possible with the Caradron. Very cool. Very neat. So that wraps up a lot of what's like in the book. Did you guys have any other points or interesting things or th- stuff that you thought was cool uh, in this battle tome? Well, I would say, and again, like Paul said, we don't spend much time on the rules, but me looking at them, we talk about this term verisimilitude, mm-hmm. and it feels like that exists a lot more. Uh, the boats feel like boats. You can, if you're on the boat, you can fire out of them, which you can imagine them standing on the on the decks and unloading guns, and you know they can fly high. There's all these things that like, uh, and I, I can't really speak to balance on the table or anything like that, but the important part for me, if I'm playing to tell a story with it is to, that it plays like it looks like it should. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and before they just kind of felt like, you know, they, they were slow enough that it was hard to fly over the top of anything. And so you just kind of like, you felt like a tank more than you felt like a boat uh, a lot of times. And so, um, this was, uh, yeah, that, that was something that I liked. And that's, that's a storytelling element because if you're, you're putting the models on the table, you want to be able to do that sort of thing. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then uh, just a real fun place to browse is the uh, command traits and artifacts because it, they're, it's a nice, you just get these little bite-sized snippets of here's something and they're specific to, you know, to the engine masters and the navigators and the admirals all have their own things. And so it's fun where you can just kind of learn more about that character type just by reading the the things available to them, the upgrades available to them. So yeah. um, I would not, if you're if you're into the story, I would not overlook that portion to to learn some more. I did not read those, but now I'll go back and do <laughs> do so. Yeah, one of the obviously kind of fun artifacts uh, that you probably heard about, but they can take a spell in the bottle yeah. where they uh, have captured, you know, an endless spell, and they can just cast it they can break that bottle open and cast it on the yeah. battlefield and, uh, and yeah that's exactly what i'm talking about like it, it's, it's a cool i mean whatever whatever rules effect it has but yeah. like the idea that they're approaching magic as 
let's take a scientific mind to this. Oh, we'll capture it in a bottle. You know, now we, yep. like that. It, it's I like that that specifically uh, further informs or further reinforces some of the things you already know about this faction from yep. elsewhere in the book. Yep. Well, and it's we didn't talk about it, but parking um, it back to uh, the the ramifications of the the necroquake. That's another thing that sort of poses a threat to these uh, KO is that it's not just other airborne like sentient beings that they need to fight off, which I mean, there's not a lot, but there are some, um, but the fact that like random endless spells like could be reaching them up in the sky. And that, that is sort of a force of nature that they have to now contend with. In addition to, you know, the beasts and the other like residents of the skies. So like it, it's, they have to come up with ways to battle the, this, this magical forces out there. I really enjoyed getting a second look at this army. I know that the first book was larger, but this one seemed to, fill my mind more completely with what the race is about. Yeah. And I really appreciated that. Um, I think one thing reaching outside of the book, uh, in the Cities of Sigmar book, um, in Tempest Eye City, there's a lot of Caradron that uh, can ally into that army, which means that there's there are some successful kind of trade partners and maybe even uh, Caradron units or boats or captains or whatever that have gone outside and kind of joined with uh, Sigmar's armies and, and become allies in closer ways. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, again, that exchange of technology and information may be more fluid in the future. Sure. 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 Um, all right. So if there's no other thoughts, uh, there one more, or maybe two more questions that uh, came from our listener. There's, there's Thundercake in the, in the discord. Um, he, a wanted to know what a baby KO looked like, which I don't know that we know. Um, <laughs> but I will say that there are a couple references to children, a, from like a training perspective and that mm-hmm. they need to like work to get into these different like schooling systems to join their guilds. But actually in our most recent pocket realms episode, there is reference to, uh, a, a, sure. a, a, I'm not going to say a married couple. Yeah. Ma- partnership. Um, life talking, partners. yeah, life partners talking about their, their children, and so, like, the way it's phrased in that story sort of calls out that, you know, children are important to these these folks. Like, I don't know that there's a price on your kids, per se, when we say there's a price on, <laughs> price on everything. Um, but it, it, I got the sense that they were important, and family still sure. was important to, to, these, uh, yeah. to this race. We actually get, um, we get a view of what a Caradron baby a bonnet or bassinet looks like uh, if you watch the Mandalorian. I knew this is coming. Yeah. And uh, baby Yoda's Yoda's floating in one of those. So that uh, that little ball, floating ball. Uh, fair enough. Um, but then Thundercake also asked um, about any lore snippets um, in the book uh, that would sort of generate any army ideas. I'm going to twist that question a little bit. And instead, I'll, real quick, if you guys would talk about, just real fast, your, your guys' armies, because three of you have uh Karajan overlord armies and um, maybe you could take a bit to describe what you have. Yeah. I have the most traditional one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I actually did. I have done a couple conversions in there. Um, but, uh, mostly, mostly stock. I'm pretty proud of my Admiral. Um, yeah, I, I used the, uh, Brock head with the, the mustache blasters, nice. which I've, I've been working on like getting this, the, this mustache big enough. You to came get the in and I was, in, I was so. nervous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, What's they're the, they're the Shadow's Edge Privateers is what uh, what I called them. And they're led by Floki Frosthole, so named for uh, hiding his fleet up in uh, ice clouds uh, for longer than his uh, unsuspecting victims thought was possible. <laughs> and so they presumed it was safe, and then he comes out all frozen over, but uh, succeeds in the ambush. So oh, that's cool. how he earned his battle name. He got about a 1,000 points of that painted up and uh, excited to do some more. So. Neat, neat. 
Nice. Eric, Eric, tell us about um, So the Jakari Drawn Overlords uh, came out of a comparison of the, the KO um, AOS uh, model line and the 40K Jukari or Dark Eldar uh, model line, which has a lot of ships that have a similar size and, and, and that sort of thing. And, um, so the idea of, of elves and how would elves do sky differently? Um, and so they've got sleeker ships, shallower ships, and, uh, they, they do more skating around. And the lore there is that they, um, certainly the admiral, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Ador Sailfin, uh, on spear, uh, is, uh, former Corsair, um, probably worked with uh, KO at some point, learned Endrin works, modified him in the Elven way, um, and they hunt down um, large sky sails, which are large sail fin fish, and they, the way that they fly is that their sail fins convert aether gold into kinetic energy, and so they, uh, instead of big balloons, uh, they have the that, that material that they use for fins and sails and that sort of stuff, and so a little bit like uh, Treasure Island from DreamWorks or whatever, where it's kind of a conversion process or a osmosis process or something. Anyway, I don't need to explain it. It's fantasy. Uh, and so that's how they, they, they sail through the air. So it's less of a storage and maybe a little more restricted to where the, the currents are, et cetera. So, um, and yeah, um, try to find different ways to convert and pull the, I have a, I have a pretty strict, like I need it to be WYSIWYG. I need it to kind of make sense uh, with whatever rules I've created for the army, but it doesn't always make sense to everyone else. But anyway, that's my Jukari drawn. Very cool. Paul, tell us about your... I built an army of grab bag scuttlers. So the lore is that a lord magnate really wanted to get some ether gold that was in um, in an Eidenef hold. Uh, it was basically the ether sea uh, is permanent in this part of the desert. And because it was so thick, his endrins couldn't push through fast enough without running out of gold. So he put legs on his ships in order to be able to go in and start harvesting that gold. Unfortunately, the Idleneth came out and destroyed them. And so these ships are just stranded in this patch of ether sea. And a, uh, a madcap shaman managed to find them and now goes around depopulating the goblin tribes from all the surrounding area and convinces them that this fleet will make them the best goodest army ever and so they go out and try and raid something fail miserably and then he just goes out and gets another tribe to repopulate them as sky pirates so nice like quintessential paul yeah exactly <laughs> homicidal <laughs> Always, general just uh, no care whatsoever yeah um, and I don't have a Krogan Overlord army, but if I did, it would be a Barrack Thring uh, force, but they would be sort of like evangelists for, like, Rungni, trying to con- trying to bring the rest of the Krogan Overlords nice. back to the fold, and so they're sort of proselytizing. Let's and, go back to the mountains. Yeah, well, that's good. Um, and, and try to rekindle the worship uh, for Grungi, maybe maybe to sort of bring him back, or catch his attention again. Yeah. Not that he's gone well, permanently, but um, that's, what, that's what I would do. Yeah. Without... A single conversion. <laughs> stock all the way. Paint on the box. Yeah. Um, well, what- I think there are some conversion ideas. Uh, the the Skyport that was lost with the, the angry Dwarden spirits. I'm sure you could make a spirit Sky Pirate army. Yeah. Uh, that wouldn't be too hard. Um, you could do an army of the city folk, right? Say that the Mar- the Arcanauts were destroyed, 
and you have these city folk that are forced to man the ships. That could easily be a cool conversion that you could make as well. Yeah, true. So there are all sorts of ideas, I think, in this book to be discovered. Um, kind of went out of order because I, I did reference that uh, Beneath the Rush short story, but um, were there any other Black Library uh, books we want to recommend for fans of the Krajan Overlord race faction? The one-two from C.L. Werner, which mm-hmm. is the uh, Overlords of the Iron Dragon and Prophet's Ruin. One, two, three, actually, because Shipwrats is that same, those same characters uh, as is well. Is that a prequel to... I think prequel, but I, I think it's independent of, sure. of the storyline. Well, that's not true because something happens at the end. Well, whatever. Um, I'm not sure. Um, but then there's also the Beneath the Rust, which is the prequel to um, Code Hope of the Skies by Graham uh, Lyon as well. But if you want to hear us, hear our review of uh, Beneath the Rust, that short story, then please listen to... I don't know whether it's the most recent Pocket Realms or the one that's coming out next. Who's to say how timing works? (laughs) It's crazy in the moral realms. But if you read Beneath the Rust, you should read Code of the Skies. I loved it. It was easily my favorite character-drawn story that we've had so far. Glowing recommendation. Strong recommendation. All right. uh, We're at the end. Any other thoughts before we get to our review? Nice. Uh, Paul, give me a a review of the Battle Tome. What do you think? Uh, I would go seven out of eight spider legs. I, I really enjoyed it. It it gave me a full sense of the Caradron that I don't feel like that I had before. Um, and I really appreciated the way that they fleshed out the actual cities. Uh, I will go 16 out of 18 seats on the Gildrad. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm racking <laughs> nice. my brain right now. <laughs> nice. Uh, I really liked it a lot. It's a faction I loved when it came out and was a little disemplo- disappointed with how it looked or how it uh, implemented on the on the tabletop uh but i think uh I'm, I'm glad to see him again i like it feels that more fleshed out more to sink your teeth into and uh really enjoyed reading it i was glad we picked this uh, eric oh man um three out of five gun haulers mm. there were a few new things and and i always love i mean my favorite part is kind of the piece where they kind of give you tidbits the timeline they give you some stories where it could be they did give us um, some new details that we didn't have before in terms of Grungni setting up uh, kind of the center of Shimon for them. There was a few places as I was reading too that I felt like I was reading the same paragraph over and over, like something that they told us before had they just told it to us in only sure. slightly new way. So it didn't. It felt like some wasted space in what we talked about, kind of like an already thin uh, battle tome. So I think there could have been more room to to talk through the different skyports and life on there or whatever. But that's yeah. Well, and another uh, point is that in some of the other battle tomes we've recently seen, there's a lot of those uh, fiction blurbs in there. Mm-hmm. I think there was one in this one, like like a in character fiction blurb where you have dialogue and such. Yeah. That's a little bit of a bummer. Yeah, cities, cities City of the Sigmar, they had one for each of the cities that they covered. Yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah. here w- wouldn't have been cool if we had a blurb like that for every every skyport. Yeah, and they, I mean, they there's a little bit. I don't know if there's more cool art in this one uh, than there was before, uh, but yeah. So I mean, it, I felt like often I'm I'm yeah expecting to burst on every page with something new, and there's a couple pages where I was kind of like just thought I was reading the same thing. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, all right, everyone else gave it a number. I will give it a four and a half out of six major skyports. I like when the battle tomes hint towards like future events and then they sort of give you that teaser for what's to come. This story didn't really necessarily, or maybe you had to read between the lines and sort of create where you thought it was going to go as opposed to like maybe explicit, like 
breadcrumb trail into the next thing. However, I did like um, that it did spend a lot of time firmly planting this battle tome sort of in the present day, like post-Necroquake and sort of dealing with the ramifications of that. And because of that, maybe that's the next best thing. If I can't look forward for it, at the very least, I want the battle tome to live in the in the now and relate to things that I know have already occurred. Because without that, it feels like it's just sort of a nebulous, you know, fish-out-of-water type story. So um, the fact that they went ahead and started releasing, re-releasing a lot of these battle tomes that maybe existed in AOS 1.0 it would have been a wasted opportunity to not talk about the now for each of these new battle tomes. And I think some of the ones we've talked about in our shows, like the Osiric Bone Reapers are obviously, you know, post Necroquake and again, a present day type army. So um, I'm, I'm glad that they spent a fair bit of time dealing with that, that fallout and that ramifications and that it, it, it changed the army in some way, or it maybe changed the effect of how they lived and um, it, it shook things up. It wasn't sort of an inconsequential, even, you know, them being up in the air and the Necroquake maybe is quake right down on the ground. Um, it still had far-reaching effects, even to the skies of, of, of the mortal realms. So I thought that was important. Um, honestly, I hate to say this to you guys because you all have the army. The army in itself, I, I have no interest really in, in playing. I don't necessarily need that sort of tech. Get him, um, boys. I know, right? Uh, <laughs> Rude. Yeah. Do, sh- should I leave my own house? Yeah. Should I, well, should I that'd go? Be the, yeah. That'd be the code, code, stuff, though. code demands it. Uh, but um, this this won me over a little in sort of seeing more of the less tech side and what little information I could get about how they how they lived beyond sort of just the technology. It, it I could have done for a little bit more on sort of the, I'm going to say the human aspect, but in this case, the Dwarden aspect. There um, we go. He's learning. Yeah, I'm doing, doing what I can. But I'll take what I can get, and maybe that's the job of the um, the Black Library fiction, and not the job of the Battle Tome, quite possibly. So I recommend picking it up if if, if you're interested, dear listener, in the Karadran Overlords. Any other thoughts before we close it out? Yeah, I think it's nice that we've we've come around, uh, we've revisited these guys. We've got a couple more to Battle Tomes to revisit, and then it's open skies. It's time for our reforging, but Sigmar Willing will be back soon. Like, subscribe, share, or leave a review. Join us on our Discord channel. Drop a tip on our Patreon. Anything you can do will spread the word of Sigmar further than we can do it on our own. Chat with us anytime about your thoughts on Twitter at the Modal Realms. Davey, where can they find you? I'm at red underscore Zeke. Aaron? Um, I'm at Dose Asos. Paul? At PJ Shard. And this is Eric at Stonemunk Gamer. And you can find all of our Mortal Realms shows and content at www.themortalrealms.com Anybody else know? You guys literally play the army. Does anybody else have a concept? What do you do uh, around here? All right, so 2017, (laughs) I think, is probably when they... Yeah, guess who's waiting behind the rift? Uh, Was it you? Is it Kaiju? No. Zinch. Yeah. Oh, God. That yeah. was my next Whoa, guess. Was That's gonna... what I should have done. Dang it. I'm embarrassed now. <laughs> <laughs> um, boat, would that boat, make boat. the world sky fairer? There's only one boat? Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Well, it's not sky fairer that they're different sizes now, is it? Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Somebody get us out of this. <laughs> uh, I'm trying. I'm trying. Pull up. Pull it's, up. It, pull up. It's time for our reforging. <laughs> <laughs>